Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Still, boy. <laughs> yeah, man. Since I've been back, this is like one of the few days I'm like I can relax, sort of. Jeez. <laughs> oh, so the situation's still getting the better of you, huh? Well, no, it's 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 been pretty busy for me. You know, it's flying to Florida. Mm -hmm. We had a delay getting on the boat. Just got stuck in there a day getting on the ship. That was fun. Flying back and then busy, 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 busy. A week of work. Busy, busy, and then like, she's like, "Oh, we have to go to Queens." I'm like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> oh, it was a dedication of the baby of my stepniece. I'm like, "What the hell's a dedication? What the fuck is that?" I said, "Oh, you mean like a communion, confirmation? Yeah, whatever. It's a baby." And no, it's dedication. I'm like, "Ah, oh, when? Like tomorrow? Come on!" <laughs> and so it was cold. You know, uh, Saturday wasn't too bad, but it was fucking cold yesterday. I'm like. Go all the way out to Queens in this small little nice church full of hot Asian girls. <laughs> now, that, that wasn't so bad. The guy was like a young Dominican dude who was their priest. They look a little afraid of me. I, I, I pegged him right away. Well, not that way. But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm like, these guys can't tell. You know, he's a little light on his feet, you know. And, light in the loafers. But he, yeah, he's good for what he did. And, I, you know, I like he, you know, he didn't read. You know, he just, like, made shit up. And I was like, oh, this guy could be entertaining fellow to listen to once in a while. He pulls real-life experiences and stuff. And he made it tolerable. And then I'm like, so where's this restaurant we're supposed to go to after this? It was nearby. Like, fuck no. I looked on my GPS and my phone. Like, it's far. So one of the girls that like now somebody said I could drive you. Well, if I knew that you could pick me up. <laughs> and uh, so we went to this real tiny Italian spot, and uh, it was alright. Food was, you know, they I guess they got a package like if you got an affair or a wedding or something. It was real like mobster, you know. Right. You know. All right, these are the rules of the house there. Don't, no coats on the back of the chairs. No no cell phones on the table. We don't allow cell phones on the table. I'm like, all right, whatever. <laughs> the food was okay. It was okay. It wasn't great. Yeah, I was like, come on. Well, you, you got one of those Sicilian joints where everything is pasta with the uh, red sauce? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it was actually, it was, uh, so it was a package. It was bronzino. Which is actually decent fish. And then he had chicken with sliced almonds and frangelica. Okay. Like our special sauce. So right away I said, well, that sounds different. And then it was like veal with that fucking brown shit with mushrooms. And that's typical. You know? <laughs> so I got the chicken. And it was like tasteless. And I was like, wow. I only veal for many different reasons, you know. And it's like, you know, bad enough I eat everything else meat. And I'm like, no, nah, I can't do that. I was like, I should have got the fish. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem yeah, with chicken is if you don't have the right sauce, it's, it is tasteless. It becomes yeah. whatever you throw on it. He's like, this is our special sauce with cherries and frangelica. I'm like, really, frangelica? I sure haven't had that in years. Yeah. And I still haven't. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you want to see how this sounds? I'm going to go on to Sean. Sounds good. <laughs>
You're listening to the Weird Sense Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Sean Connery on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema slash Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Welcome to the what is this? The, just I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the third episode of the seventh season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. You're such a guy to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, the Prague fan. Come, I don't know what walking out on shows because they're so bad, Mr. Lewis Paul. As we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird and wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, our late-in-the-run at-eye-level correspondent from Scotland regularly brought up as a sort of bemused reality check, the fact that his grandmother's milkman was none other than Sean Connery, a prophet has no honor in his own country. Supposedly an amateur bodybuilder, though you'd probably never know it from what we see on celluloid, an ex-Royal Navy man, Connery was a milkman both as a youth and an adult, a truck driver, an artist model, and a laborer. But that all changed. And a great digger. Yes. <laughs> wow. I'm sorry I missed that one. Yes. And a grave digger, turning down all manner of blue-collar jobs and manual labor, supposedly even a shot at being a pro footballer. He made a crucial right turn to acting, and give or take 10 years working his way through inconsequential bit parts and westerns, Disney pictures and such. The rest is history, because in 1962, he took on the role of Ian Fleming's super spy, James Bond, one rejiggered to the fantasies and hopes of its day, all tech gadgets and Cold War gravitas needed into a pulp action adventure series unlike any other, but which spawned literal hundreds of imitators globally, most notably the Creamies, Edgar Wallace and Mabuza films, and Jerry Cotton series out of Germany, and ridiculous numbers of Italian, French, British, and Spanish Eurospy pictures. Hell, even washed-up crooners like Dean Martin and tongue-in-cheek types like Tony Randall and the James Coburn in Like Flint series got in on the act. But tonight, we're going to tackle some of the noble films he's been front and center for, from poorly sung Irishmen chasing leprechauns, to taut thrillers, from bizarre Euro-westerns and gritty soul-searching 70s cop dramas, to weird allegories about sex and society, lousy disaster films, midgets, monks, evil knights, badly Russian-accented subcommanders, awkward Alan Moore adaptations, even Indiana Jones' father. We've taken on his more famous series twice over. But this is virgin territory, so stay tuned as we tackle the non-Bond films of Sean Connery, only here on Weird Scenes. Sean Connery, Beyond Bond. There was an incident my wife and I love to share where we go to see, of all things, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And Mm. outside the theater, there was a crowd of, like, hipster yuppie types, the most nebbishy of which practically got into a crouch to excitedly exclaim to the rest of his group, It's got Sean Connery in it! Everything he does is good! Well, that's clearly not the case, as we'll discover tonight. That said, he does bring a touch of bemused, old-school, manly gravitas, somewhere between laughing at what he's doing and bursting out in fits of calculated rage. It's only when he tries to act all sexy like he does with the ladies in Bond that he seems kind of cheesy. But he does bring something to his parts, I've got to say that. We had kind of mentioned early on about his background. Is there anything you had wanted to say or, or toss anything about? No, uh, you know, as far as his background... um. Not really. Um, there was. I don't know if you were gonna mention it or where you're starting. Where are you starting with the Starbio Gill? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. No, I, I. I think you pretty much mentioned it. Bit parts. A lot of post-war stuff. A lot of you played soldiers in a lot of movies. Uh, I think he he may have did small roles in one or two of those. You know, uh, those black and white Hammer crime films. You remember those? Yes, I do. 
Some of them are quite good. A lot of them are quite good. You know, mm-hmm. he, he would appear, like, if you watch him today, you know, you might have even forgot he was in the cast. It's just like, oh, wow, look at that, Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. But no, his big thing was, well, before Bond, I remember, you're going you're gonna to speak of this next. I remember my mother taking me, I think it was re-release at Radio City Music Hall, it was Derby Who Killed the Little People. <laughs> Yes. Where he sang. Yes, rather badly. Uh, <laughs> so Dark I would say serviceable. Yeah, it's. You but know. somebody that doesn't sing, he can pull off a tune. It's not quite as bad as say, um, what's his name, Pierce Brosnan and Mamma Mia. But it's almost on. Yeah, that I don't know what happened with that. They have all the. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so 1959, we're talking about, and Disney delivers this weird-ass kids film about a crusty old drunk known for delivering fishtails and a line of bullshit like he'd never believe. He's got a rival down at the local pub, stiff-necked Kieran Moore, Dr. Blood himself, and is being retired from his blue-collar job, but he wants to keep it secret from his middling to eh, 50s daughter, Janet Munro. Connery is the newcomer, the young guy who's he's grooming to take over his job, and he's got a vested interest in playing along because for some reason he's out for the daughter. Don't ask me why. Moore wants the job and girl for himself. The old bum winds up running afoul of the leprechauns he's always going on about and loses many a battle of wits with them. And his daughter gets kidnapped by a banshee before credits roll. But in the end, Dr. Blood gets his comeuppance, the leprechauns help the old coot out, and Connery gets to warble, my pretty Irish girl, a few times just for audience laughs. Connery can't sing worth a shit, but it's a cute film. The bit with the banshee up among the ruins at night is atmospheric and well done. And it's got that weird claustrophobic feel of the 50s and early 60s kid film, which you'll understand if you've seen these things from Europe and the likes of Kay Gordon Murray, and of all people, nudie directors, Herschel Gordon-Lewis, and especially Barry Mayen, who made several of them around this time. It's actually got a lot in common feel-wise with The Magic Sword, which also stars cast member Estelle Winwood, Marcia Queen of Diamonds' mom in the old Batman TV series. For a kid's film, especially this era, it's actually really amusing, but... Yeah, so th- this is his auspicious start. Yeah, uh, I'll be a little bit more kinder. You mentioned Pierce Brosnan and Mamma Mia. You know, they, I I don't know if Sean, prior to the singing of pubs or whatever, <laughs> or hanging out with the boys, this is pre-karaoke people, but I think I think he was serviceable. You know, he's got that deep fucking, you know, accent going on, but he wasn't as terrible as you might think uh, as, as far as the singing. And, you know, it's... It's amusing, yeah, that's good, and it's also rather dark, and I, yes. it's very good that you picked up on films that were out around that same time that it's very similar to. There's, it's akin to that. It's probably one Disney film you don't see in heavy rotation. Also, like, uh, what was the one Cushing did that they kind of buried, too, with Patrick McGowan, The Scarecrow, Romney Marsh, or whatever it. it was called? Yes. Yeah. That was another really dark, bizarro Disney kind of thing. I wouldn't say they were experimenting, but there there was a time when they were just making kids' pictures, and probably people said, oh, give me a little fucking drink. I don't even show what's going on here. You know, and <laughs> just doing some weird stuff. Yeah. Next he did. So next up, he does Tarzan's Greatest Adventure, mm. which I do not remember. I know I'd seen it in the past. I would love to see it again, but it's uh, not all that easy to see. I think it's out on like, one of those Warner Archive burn type things. The only thing I can remember about it is that I had seen a few of these. I think this was the Herman Bricks era. Am I right about that? No, 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 no. He was silent there. I think it was Mike Henry. No, no, it wasn't. It was one of the... It's, it's actually a name actor, one of those... Uh... Oh, as Tarzan? 
Yeah, Gordon Scott. Maybe it was Gordon Scott. The fellow that was doing all the, the Euro uh, peplas. Gordon but, Scott, you're right. But yeah, around that time, I was like, wow, there's actually a decent Tarzan movie past like the first one or two. Yeah, it's not bad. But that's all I can remember about this. I had not seen it in many years. Yeah, it wasn't bad. It's actually got a decent cast. And yeah, you're, it is Gordon Scott, because Mike Henry, Gordon Scott around the same time. Is, yeah, toward the late 50s, early 60s, for some of the better, more contemporary, contemporaneous, that's a word, mm-hmm. Tarzan films. And they, they actually hold up more better than you actually think they did, uh, they would 10 years after. Say. So let's say 1969, 1970, these things wouldn't play well, but they play better today, I think. Not a great Tarzan movie, but it was, you know, mercenaries, that kind of thing, so Connery fit well into this kind of Milu, for lack of a better word. So uh, after a couple of other things, you know, he's doing TV movies, he's doing things like Macbeth and Henry IV and whatever else, he winds up doing Bond, and he does Dr. No, back-to-back almost, with for much with love. And we had talked about the Bond films, just like we had talked about the Euro Spies and the Creamies and the Jerry Cotton series, and a lot of things we mentioned in the intro in previous shows. I will say that, just overall, the Connery Bonds tend to hold up a lot better than the Moors, or yes. even the Daltons. So... You know, you pretty much have to go, if you want to find somebody, to me anyway, that works as well as Connery in that role, you have to at least go up to Brosnan. The others on the soap. They were of their time, they've got their entertainment value, they've got high points and low points, we've discussed all this twice over, mm. but Connery really, that was his role he was born to do. But he still did these odd films, and that's why we're doing the show tonight. Right. So next up, he does one that I really did like. I remembered liking it. I'd seen it fairly recently, and I liked it even more than I did last time around, which was Woman of Straw. Crusty old Tony Richardson is one lousy human being, rich and powerful, but crippled, widowed, and lording it over his African serving staff as if they were animals. He literally uses his corporate power over their family's jobs to have them show his dogs how to perform tricks. It's that bad. But we're supposed to feel some sort of sympathy for him, which is just incomprehensible. He even bumped off Connery's father, his own brother, to steal his wife. So yeah, I feel sorry for this asshole. Anyway, the apple not falling far from the tree. Connery's his nephew and son of the aforementioned late wife, who's trying to get around this old shithead's nasty grim of a will, which leaves him a pittance and throws the rest of the fortune to the wind just to spite him, by pulling in a straw man, or in this case, woman of straw, to marry the old bastard, inherit all his money, and then split that with Connery. The rest of the film is working out of this scam, with the lady in question being Nurse Gina Lollobrigida, mm-hmm. and Connery getting physical with her in private while acting indifferent, if not against Richardson's increasing affection towards her in public. Of course, it's a mystery in the heyday of Hitchcock, so things don't exactly work out according to plan. Connery works well in this sort of world, and thus found himself cast as the handsome but untrustworthy bastard in several films around his time, of which this is easily the most successful. Lola Brigida was one of those Italian bombshells from the 50s that I never really got what the big deal was. She's not that out of the ordinary looks-wise, and her persona and demeanor are almost indistinguishable from a lot of Italian girls then and now. She's not hard to look at and veers from anger to lust at the drop of a hat, but that's kind of like saying, hey, she's Italian or Mediterranean per se. Greek, Spanish, even Turkish folks all bear that kind of disposition. I'd say the general public never saw an Italian girl before, but they'd already had Lorraine, Vernalisi, Rosanna Schiaffino, hell, even Maria Callas. But, 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 but Gina had pouty lips and huge breasts. 
Well, so, so, so these other girls. I mean, so are these other girls, but she was a name. So I, it was a name thing, I think, too. Yeah, I didn't really get it. What's so special about her compared to all these other ones you've already seen or that you will see in the future? I mean, she's fine. She's attractive. She's passionate-natured, but nothing really stands out about her to put her, you know, why La Lola? Oh, oh Jalola Bridget, a big deal over so many others. It makes well, no sense to me. Well, I agree. It is, and actually, it is a bit of a strange role. And he would start doing this thing after doing two ultra mega super successful Bond movies. It came overnight with two pictures. And, you know, pretty much as you said, back to back, like this huge star. Suddenly, he's elevated from smaller roles to he could pick and choose. And you know, I think the guy started to show his smarts early on too. You know, he's like. Maybe, and, and he was. We'll get to see how much of a good actor he was, too, coming up. Uneven, though. Uneven in his choice of roles. But, you know, when he's doing stuff like this, it's just like, what? I'm sure it shocked people as, as much as it did with Marnie. Oh, yeah. I should also toss one other bone out to one of the cast members. Johnny Seca, who really delivers as one of the main servants, he's torn and clearly restraining himself, but he's probably filled with hurt, shock, and rage at every bit of dehumanization thrown his way. And later towards Lola Bridget, for whom he clearly feels a protective affinity. He was a regular on British TV and film around that time, and then later he shifted to American TV for stuff like the Hardy Boys and Roots in the mid to late 70s. But with such a small cast, he's surprisingly noticeable and pulls off what amounts to a thankless part very well, so hats off to him as well. So next up, he goes right from this one to Marnie, which, well, okay, it's Hitchcock, but let's leave it at that now, because scary old uptight prude Tippy Hedren, fresh off embarrassing herself in The Birds, is given leave to act out what we already saw in her the last time around. She's a creepy old lady with her hair in the equivalent of a bun, dressed up in old lady clothes like Ruth Buzzy doing that bag lady Agnes I'm laughing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but incidental characters of both sexes are continually reminding the audience that she's a dish, as a saying it will make it so. She's got an even worse white trash mama out of the Bible belt who cringes at the very idea of showing her daughter affection and essentially calls her a slut for bleaching her hair blonde because that means a girl's fishing for men and men in a good name never go hand in hand. Just to rub salt in the wounds of this girl, she's screwed up so horribly by her religious prudishness. She constantly phones over some obnoxious little brat next door, going so far as to threaten to move her and her mother into the family house. She has another vulnerable mind to warp into a lifetime of psychoanalysis. Hedren's sole outlet for all this repressed sexuality and affection starvation is to steal big money from short-term employers before skipping town and changing her name and hair color every time. Unfortunately, the next job she takes is for Connery, who's supposed to be a slick businessman and judge of character, and since he has eyes and she's clearly cracked, freaking out thunderstorms like a dog and reacting insanely to certain colors, she's caught in short order. Of course, he'd already begun dating with the supposed sexy player Connery telling her he wants to teabag her on the first date uh, before blackmailing her into marriage and literally raping the frigid freak. But, of course, he's, quote, in love and seems to get off on playing shrink, so there's a big happy ending. And the whole time he's had cute elfin Diane Baker, apparently the little sister of his late ex-wife, coming on to him like gangbusters. But nah, he'd rather force it with the insane ice cube. Best part, the Bible-thumping old bitch used to be a hooker. When John Bruce Stern gets weird with the kid, she kills him. I've seen a lot of prudish family-type women who used to be easy meat, so this is just basic psychology, but still. Alfred the Butler cameos as Connery's father. Never mind the shitty rear projections, this is actually one of Hitchcock's absolute worst films ever. I don't know why, then... And now, people like Marnie Sarge. I hate this fucking awful, movie. Awful movie. Kudos to Connery for taking on this role. I mean, this back-to-back performance straw, which is really like, <laughs> oh, your hero no. to a bastard. 
Yeah, he was a you know, and he still was a heartthrob after this. But you know, he was a come out of nowhere heartthrob. You know, the he still looked good without a shirt, and you know, he still had a great toupee, <laughs> and he had that little brogue going on, and he could wink and fuck. You know, that was Sean Connery. You know, but uh, hey, this is our show. <laughs> but he does these two movies where he's you're not quite sure both of these pictures until the end of the film whether he's likable or not and actually comes off dislikable for the majority of the picture because you know it's like oh it's really weird two downbeat pictures and you know Tippy ah, Tippy Hedren is such a conundrum because I interviewed her many years ago I would have to say I was 20 years ago and it was a phone interview and it was like the weirdest thing I ever did <laughs> Well, amongst them, but as far as those go, but yeah, she's a she's a character. She's like Alfred wanted to, you know, spend time with me. I'll just try to put it nicely. But you know, it's like, but you look like you're a fragile person. You look. How many credits has she done since then? Not many. Ten. I think she was like a fragile person in life, in real life. So very, very interesting. Very possible. Two downbeat, bizarre movies in a row after coming out, blasting out of the cannon with Bond. So he does two more Bond films, Goldfinger and Thunderball, and then basically jumps right into a really fucked up comedy, A Fine Madness. Oh, I'm sorry, but you skipped The Hill. Well, The Hill was right after Goldfinger, and Sidney Lumet, who'd done all those weird Al Pacino crime films later on in the 70s, like Serpico and stuff mm-hmm. like that, is just like this weird-ass fucking military picture about these guys oh, some of them are prisoners some of them not Connery's a former squadron major convicting of assaulting his commanding officer sort of like the dirty dozen but they don't go on a mission it's just full of machismo and bitching <laughs> but you got like Harry Andrews is in this uh, Ian Bannon Roy Kinnear, Jack Watson Ian Hendry, Sir Michael Redgrave you know these are like key British actors in this time period and the decade before. Thing is, this movie is another one of these weird... And Connery does away with the toupee, which was like the first time. And it's not very likable. I remember seeing this on TV. It did so poorly in the theaters, even though with his name attached, that it immediately went to late night television back in the day. And if you were like me, you know, 60s and 70s, you know, we would stay up late and you would see all kinds of cool shit on regular broadcast television. Do you remember this? Definitely do. And and uh, this was on. I'm like, oh, I'll watch this. Oh, I watched it two or three times over like a year. Because it was hard slowing through it. It was like people yelling at people to walk up. One of the punishments to walk up this mound of sand. And it was just a machismo bullshit thing. You know, like the, the, the guys in charge wanted to yell at the guys below them. And I, I, I never got the thing about what the fuck was going on. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, The Hill was not a success. But for him, it became a movie that led a little later to, to other similar roles until it came to a head with the offense oh, yeah. about five, six years later. Okay, now we turn to you with a fine madness. Well, I'll say this, though. You brought up being in the 70s and 80s. That is exactly true, because you didn't really see too much good stuff, unless, you know, kung fu movies and stuff on Saturday afternoons, but maybe some horror host stuff, you know, coming into USA or whatever. 
but there really wasn't much that you would catch during the day, except going back to the 70s when they had the afternoon movies, all those witchcraft movies like Crowhaven Farm or whatever, or The Devil's mm-hmm. Daughter, or what's that famous one that they had with the gnomes that were living in the house, uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, right. things like that. But basically, if you wanted to see good stuff, you would stay up late and watch things like Fright Night, and then when USA came around with cable, you had Up All Night, because before it got taken over by the comedy hosts and became more right. like junk films, it was actually horror films and John Waters films, and then you would see, if you were up late enough, you would see Punk Rock Theater with Peter Ivers, lots of good stuff on. But you would see things, like especially on Fright Night, that were only a couple of years old, and you realize later, I mean, many years later, I'm like, holy shit, we were watching Paul Nashy films maybe, you know, four years after they were released in Spain. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, they cut them, but it was strange, a lot of Italian giallos basically a lot of the cult films that came out on DVD and Blu-ray that kind of started the whole medium of people being into fantastic films in the recent decades, that's where they were shown originally. They were on TV back in the late 70s and the uh, early to mid-80s on late night viewings. Good point, good point, yeah. So anyway, back to Connery. This fine madness thing. Sean Connery tries to reform the grumpy bastard slash crook slash rapist image he's been building up outside the Bond films by showing up in this screwed up quote-unquote comedy about a poet who's behind on his alimony, chased by debt collectors, and working weird odd jobs, which he promptly blows by getting laid by perky character actress, comedian Sue Ann Langdon, who you recognize for bit parts in just about everything. He's married to a real dim bull, Paul Newman's wife, Joanne Woodward, who's intent on getting him to a TV shrink. Of all people, Chamber of Horrors knife-handed maniac Patrick O'Neill, because she's afraid of his depression and outbursts of anger. But he's a poet. Think about this. Shelley, Byron, Poe, Dylan Thomas, Burroughs, Charlie Bukowski. It's pretty much a given that they're poor, angry, and drunk. So when he insults an audience of prim Bible thumpers, she goes so far as agreeing to a lobotomy on the poor schlub, which they actually go through with after he bangs the shrink's neglected wife, Gene Seaberg. Somehow, he's supposed to be perfectly normal post-lobotomy and enough of a hippie to suggest that Seaberg and Woodward live with him in a menage a trois. The end. You know, there's absolutely nothing funny about this, and Connery hardly breaks the mold here, still playing a pissed-off, amoral bastard prone to explosions of violence, just like every other movie he's done to date, say perhaps Bond, and his weird instant sex appeal to the ladies is ported over from these for good measure. It's most notable for the weird casting. Sorrel Boss Hog Book? Zora Let's Scare Jessica to Death Lampert, Edgar Wallace Creamy Regular Werner Peters, mm. and Jackie Coogan join our already bizarre headline cast. What the fuck were any of them thinking? So, what's your take on this monstrosity? This is weird. This is now, aside from Bond, this is three bizarre movies in a row. All uh, four. Yes. Four, yep. including The Hill. And it's like, okay, so I guess realizing that. I don't know what the deal is. I'm sure it's probably in one of these many, many, many Bond books. There probably was a contract for five or six pictures. So he just had done three, right? Three or four. So he's figuring, fuck, I could do whatever I want. (laughs) (laughs) So he's like, let me see this script. Oh, I'm an evil anymore. Oh, I get a lobotomy in this one. Yeah, I'll do this. (laughs) Um, I don't know what he was thinking because this is so bizarre. I'm sure, again, I just said this uh, either exactly or in another way or fashion, that people who got turned on to him with the Bond movies, you know, he did this again right after <laughs> You Only Live Twice, which we're going to discuss coming up. Yes. You know, the, 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 the old biddies, the grandmas, the young girls, hell, even, even flower power chicks, I'm sure some of them were attracted to him during his time period, are, oh, he's back. And, you know, you know I'm sure... Uh, my memory is a bit dim on this because I was so young. 
But I'm sure the promotion for this is like Connery is back as Danny in a five menace or as Stuart Schulto. <laughs> right. And Marnie, you know, even directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Wow, look at that. Gene Bond and Alfred Hitchcock movie. And then they come out of the theater. What the fuck did I just see? Yeah. And especially this, it's supposed to be a comedy. What's funny about this? Who would sit there and say, wow, that's great, that's hilarious? Holy shit, this guy just got a lobotomy for being well, a drunk. It's, it's the 60s, man. God, yeah. We didn't laugh at everything unusual. <laughs> Something that we did, I guess. I don't remember. Well. But next, we go even more off field. Yes. So, of course, he does You Only Live Twice, like you mentioned, and which is one of my favorite Bond films to this day. Mine and, too. Yeah. Mine too, yes. And then goes to Shalico. Now, we had discussed this during our Bardot film, but even so, uh, Edward Dramatric, who gave us great noir films like Murder, My Sweet, Crossfire, and later The K-Mutiny and Bluebeard, directs a semi-paella western with a bit of an all-star international cast. Bardot is the only capable member of a rich Eurotrash hunting party made up of folks like Peter Van Eck of the Mabuza and Edgar Wallace Creamy, and Honor Blackman of the Avengers and Bond fame, who come up with the genius idea of going hunting in the American Old West in the middle of Apache territory, while setting up banquet tables and with a butler serving champagne. Having hired a bunch of sleazebags as guides, they're all but defenseless, except for the feisty Bardot, who knows her way around a gun, so to speak, <laughs> and wandering cowpoke Sean Connery, who latches on to the group simply because he knows without them they're dead. Eventually, their guides turn on them, stealing their money and supplies, and even raping Honor Blackman before they go, which makes her fall for the guy and run off with him. Worse, they get ambushed by the Apaches, and every one of the scam artists either dies or runs off, leaving her to get abused, then killed by the natives. In the end, Connery saves the day, sort of. An amusing tidbit, originally planned to film in the U.S. and Mexico, the producer noticed that many Native Americans were overweight and didn't look very menacing, so they wound up using Spanish locations and recruiting a bunch of Romani gypsies to play the Apaches. Not the best film in any of these folks' quivers by a long shot. Bachman was clearly not channeling Kathy Gale here. Bardot was at her least sexual and not exactly being herself. Van Eck is barely recognizable, so baldly and puffily has he aged since we last saw the man. And yet, it's far from unwatchable. It's actually strangely hypnotic in its own weird sort of Euro-Western way. Well, you know, and Connery is looking rather grizz- grizzled in yes. this, too, and haggard. Yeah, you know, the other thing. This is also this time period. I think Burt Lancaster was doing Osana's Raid, Lawman, all our classic machismo he-man actors that we liked and enjoyed. People started taking darker Western roles, but he he's only been a star for like six years at this point, if that. Mm-hmm. So he, he just latched onto that thing, but it's it's a bit of a mess because you know we got. A cast of international Euro Starlets, veterans, etc. And it's a Western. And it's like, he's miscast from the word go. A lot of people are. Stephen Boyd, booze chugging, <laughs> used to be happy, happy go lucky, uh, handsome dude, like four years previous. is now a mess. He's in this thing. Mm-hmm. It's a strange movie. I never liked this, and I tried to watch it numerous times over the years. To the point where, like, I would get, like, a box set of this and that. Oh, this is on there. And then they're like, oh, okay. I didn't like, you know. <laughs> Very strange movie. So, uh, next up, he does a couple of things. You may or may not want to mention them. The Molly Maguires. Uh... Oh, I do want to mention that, actually. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll jump on that. 1970, Sean follows up his other downbeat films with another downbeat film. <laughs> <laughs> this one is about miners in Pennsylvania. Cue all the heavy... Euro accents. 
this is directed by Martin Ritt, who at that time was an octogenarian, but, you know, hey. And he was still working 30 years later. <laughs> they kind of propped him up in a coffin or something. <laughs> so this is about miners in Pennsylvania. So, you know, I guess you can get away with all the accented people because it was set in the late 19th century. Richard Harris is in this. Uh, Samantha Ager, who was like a come-and-go girl of the moment. Uh, Frank Finley, who, who we like in a lot of films. Great cinematography, a great gritty cinematography by James Wong Howe, great cinematographer. But it's an unlikable film. It's dirty, it's downbeat, it's like, I guess it's it's a thing of the early 70s. It's like, uh, you know, our mood at the time was like downbeat, you know, let's make a downbeat movie. Mm-hmm. Connery's build over Richard Harris and Samantha Egger, the girl of the moment, I think. It was just like... Well, something got caught in my throat. It was words? just like... Like, you went from my ball? The words get stuck the words. in my throat! <laughs> well, that, you know, and it was filmed in Pennsylvania. You know, uh, Donald Trump, they probably hasn't been in open fucking mind since 1969, you idiot. But anyway, <laughs> where they filmed this... <laughs> you mean the mines are closed? Strange supporting cast of familiar faces. You might reckon, if you've seen this, or if you ever want to see this movie... You might recognize a lot of people's faces, may not be able to to place their names, you know, to do the matchup. Anthony Zerby, of all people, is in this thing, so it shows you what kind of production we were dealing with there. A downbeat film. A, a There's a fight, several fights in the muddy rain. It's just like Richard Harris starts his, uh, which he, he kind of stopped for a while. He starts his down uh, downturn. Probably feud by booze. I'm sure this is a fun shoot. What was that one he did? Um, Firepower with uh, Beverly D'Angelo. <laughs> it could have been. It could have been something like that. I don't know. But just this is this is not a likable film. Whether it's historically accurate or not, you know about the uh, miners fighting unions and Ivanka. What's the black lung disease? <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, you know the unions forcing the miners to. Yeah, this is. I'm sure that kind of thing was going on here. But this is followed by an amazing film, I think. Well, okay. So 1971, you mentioned Sidney Lumet before. I thought this was the first time you'd start working together with him. So Sidney Lumet, who gave us four superior films like 12 Angry Men, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, and The Offense, delivers a strangely prescient take on Watergate almost a year to the day prior to when that government surveillance scandal broke. The Anderson Tapes. Connery's a grouchy ex-con who took the rap for a monster pal and has been down for a whole decade. When he finally gets paroled and back together with his odd-looking but hot-to-track girlfriend Diane Cannon, the two don't waste any time in coming up with a major heist in the same building he's been living in. From here, it's almost a typical heist film, except that the mob gets in on this and demands a hit as payment for their involvement. But the whole heist almost becomes a side story to the intrusiveness of spying and surveillance. Literally everywhere these folks go, they're being watched, filmed, and recorded by everyone from the DEA and the FBI to the IRS and a hired PI. There's not just one sting operation going down here. There are several overlapping ones. Beyond all this paranoia and anticipation of the still the brick Watergate, the film is a weird starfucker cast. Martin Balsam, Alan King, young guns like Christopher Walken, and Saturday Night Live's Garrett Morris, oddball stunt casts like Margaret Hamilton, the Wicked Witch of the West herself, and Conrad Bain from Different Strokes. 
Apparently, this was Walken's first film, and one of Hamilton's last. She'd next appear in the Dan Curtis TV movie The Night Strangler, the weird Sid and Marty Croft kids show Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, and the hilariously gay Paul and Halloween special, which must be seen to be believed. I do recommend that one. <laughs> what a way to end a career. All told, the film isn't all that memorable, or even very watchable, as a heist film, or even as one of those political paranoia jobs like Black Sunday or The Manchurian Candidate, which is probably why it's more or less forgotten and relegated to those budget DVD multi-packs, which, by the way, is exactly where I found it. Plus, the Quincy Jones, he delivers a score which may be hands down the worst electronic synthesizer score ever put together for celluloid. Very strange film, but you have higher opinion of it, so what's your take? I have a higher opinion of it. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, you dislike it. No, I have a, uh, yeah, uh, about the Quincy Jones score, I I don't, yeah, it's lots of bleeps and bloops. Remember Gleep and Gloop? Yes. <laughs> uh, well, it's a lot of bleeps and bloops. Gleep and Gloop were from, what was that, He-Man? Uh, those are the Herculoids. Herculoids, yes, yes, yes. Well, there's a lot of bleeps and bleeps. Like, it's like somebody who's never been near a computer. <laughs> their, their idea of what a computer would sound like when the tapes roll. Colossus, the programming project, did that, too. Yes. Anyway, that was inside. I like this. Connery looks terrible in this. Yes, um, this is around the time period he did Diamonds Are Forever, his mm-hmm. Bond comeback, sort of. And he put on some weight. It actually looked paunchy. And whether he was having a hairpiece or not, he was very thinning of the hair. And he just... A little shocking the way he looked in this. But, you know, swinging his balls around, you just got out of jail <laughs> after 10 years. and <laughs> He liked that. Diane Cannon, who, for some reason, I don't know, Belmondo got the fucker in a movie, Connery's fucking a movie, I don't know, the, these guys with the skinny blonde chicks, I know, I, I used to come to that my my past as well. I mean, too, Things happen. Not with a big, goofy, like, Popeye's like, that's like a fish. <laughs> Would you say no? I didn't say that. But... <laughs> yeah, all right, so, okay, now we move on. So, anyway, yeah. I I agree with you. It's a weird <laughs> cast in this thing. And, yeah, the surveillance thing is really prescient, I think, in some points, some parts. And the movie just gets... You know what's... my One of my problems with this film is that we're following the story. And it's got all these intertwining plot elements. Yes. And I'm rolling with the punches. And then it gets excessively violent. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? I do. There, there's a midpoint in the film where they're doing the heist... And everything starts going awry. And it's like getting, you know, typically for the time period, you know, uh, early 70s, excessively violent. It's almost a shock, in a way, to see a Connery film, and this is a precursor, of course, to other things he he does after this, where it gets excessively violent. And it's like, you get to the point where I don't even like this guy anymore, even though he's a can we call him an anti-hero? I don't know. I don't like know Robert Redford and The Hot Rock, a not entirely unsimilar film or dissimilar film, was a likable guy. Remember The Hot Rock? Sure. But but here, if we're, if we're trying to say Connery's of a, a similar fashion, this shit happens by the middle of this picture. No, we, we, he's unlikable. It's, and the problem is, by the, by the end of the movie, we just don't like it. We don't like what happens to everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's like people, characters that you've invested yourself in to some degree or another, even though they right. may have been like huggy bear types, you know, let's put it that way, all of a sudden are getting bumped off and getting, you know, really the raw deal, if you will. I'm like, what the hell? What? Why? <laughs> all right, well, fuck this movie then. <laughs> yeah, that's how you come out at the end. <laughs> hey, fuck this movie. I'm not watching it anymore. <laughs> okay. 
So, anyway, next he does, which is actually probably one of his better films outside the Bond films, which, again, Sidney Lumet, The Offense. This is the kind of British cult film I love. I don't mean so much the police procedural bits or the thing about the child murders or even this unspoken connection between Connery's closet and a repressed police detective and the sicko that he gets so obsessed and violent with. That's all old hat and possibly even better done elsewhere at this point in history. But it's quiet and it's grim and it's like someone took and soon the darkness and into the frightened people and crossed it with nothing but the night all gloomy overcast dark jaunts to the british countryside with flawed characters heading helplessly towards their doom and no glimmer of hope in sight it's very 70s british particularly when it comes to cult horror and you can find examples much like in the annals of everything from hammer tygen and amicus of this period to the likes of pete walker and norman j warren and michael reeves particularly in terms of the sorcerers and we've covered many of those in the past on the podcast certainly hammer mm-hmm. and amicus walker and warren but so many scenes of cold clinical fluorescent lit characters be they hospitals or police stations empty rain-swept streets that seem as dark in daylight as they do under the cover of night that so much of this film takes place in, chilly, boggy countryside, even some bravura camera work, tracking and framing, all set to a nearly silent absence of soundtrack. It's like someone realized exactly what's wrong with John Williams and reacted by creating the anti-John Williams, film that stands on its own, enhanced by its lack of forefront or even backgrounded orchestral bombast and cheese. It actually makes you pay attention, like it or not. So tagging an increasingly crazed performance by Connery, who goes from his usual cold and gruff bit to setting off occasional unexpected sparks to freaking out on the level of Nicolas Cage by the end. Mm. Again, he makes you pay attention. And the fact that Bannon, while clearly recognizing what's going on with Connery and playing with him, may not even be guilty in the first place. And you have a really great film on your hands. It's unrelentingly dark, sure. It's too much for some audiences to handle, yeah, no question. Disturbing and implicating the viewer as much as its protagonist, you betcha. Nobody walks out of this one unshaken to some degree or another. It's definitely a case of gazing into a Nietzsche and abyss. But a good film on a level that goes beyond our usual assessment of, oh, that's a great cult film. Again, closer to the sort of film that national registries try to preserve, film students study, and classier labels like Criterion tend to gravitate towards. It's some strong stuff. Interestingly enough, despite having only Connery and Ian Bannon a frightened doom watch to its credits, the film was co-produced by Connery himself. He must have seen something in this material to throw his weight behind it like this, and it's a film very much deserving of a wider audience. I do really recommend it if you have the stomach for it. I almost speechless. There's very little I can add to this that you that you have already said. It's it's yeah. This film needs to be seen by more people. I it's it's criminally unseen then and now. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't help that critics, I'm not talking about us, but even critics of the time, uh, it was more well-received in, in England and Great Britain than it was here, review-wise. And it was after the fact that people are starting to reassess this this movie. I had never heard of it until it hit blue. And it seemed like, okay, this seems interesting. Let me try this. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> and it's yeah, one of those films I'll just go back and re-watch after I just finished watching it. Connery is feral in this. Yes. Feral. Not from the get-go. I mean, it's 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 a it's a build. Yeah, it's a build, and uh, yo, it's it's. Thing is, though, I will say to people who probably read about this movie or read some criticisms, you really have to see it because I don't think writings have done justice to the way it plays out. You might get a different idea of what this movie is actually about. So you have to watch it to see for yourself how it plays out. Just realize that the two characters are very interconnected and they are mirrors of each other. Yeah. What Connery is attacking is what he sees in himself, which is actually very true of what people do. 
I mean, people that are far right or very religious or very uptight tend to really go after people that are doing what they really are kind of fighting in themselves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if people would admit to this and kind of, I hate to say go to psychotherapy, but kind of look into themselves, get a little more introspective, maybe it would be a less difficult world to live in. Uh, and this is exactly what this film's about. I love you. <laughs> anyway, next we follow this up by the... Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> next. We follow this up with something that's very different. <laughs> John Borman, between Deliverance and Exorcist to the Heretic, and about six years before Excalibur, gathers Sean Connery and the intriguing, always intriguing, Charlotte Rampling, just before the Night Porter caravan to Vicar's Farewell, My Lovely, and Orca, but not long removed from her memorable but oft-deleted scenes in Vanishing Point and Amicus is the Asylum, writes, directs, and produces, so you know he believed in this one, this weird-ass take on sexual politics and sci-fi eugenics, Zardoz. There's this whole nonsensical world built up in the future where hairy guys in Greek masks and diapers run around on horseback killing and raping everyone. Every so often a giant head flies around and makes demands on them, and they worship it like a god. We're still in the era of 2001, folks. Connery manages to figure out the central conceit of the film, that it's some ersatz take on the Wizard of Oz, and this pisses him off enough to hide in the grain the head demands and fly off to his native land, one populated by icy British women with no makeup, and gay men, each of whom find his hairy chest, back, and Fu Manchu porn mustache intriguing. Uh, there's a lot of mental telepathy, a weird drug orgy, a freaky gender-bender Pride Day parade of a party with a bunch of hippies and old folks' makeup, and a self-imposed extinction, before Connery and Rampling run off together into a more recognizably barbaric world of traditional gender politics. Obviously a big head film of a commentary on the whole new man and ACDC thing of the 70s, crossed with a bit of Demolition Man and filtered through a whole lot of drugs. This is simultaneously a hilariously camp party film, a trippy psychedelicized head film, and the dullest, stupidest UK sci-fi film ever lens. What you get out of it pretty much depends on who you are and where you're at. Not great on any level, but it's bizarre enough that you really do have to see it at least once. If only to laugh at the fact like an ape-like, overly hirsute, yet balding man in such a ridiculous mustache running around in his underwear like this was once considered a sex symbol. Hilarious if you're in the right mood. I think he took this role because the 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 piece he was wearing showed his big dick a lot. <laughs> you know, Connery was known for having like a huge cock. And I don't know him personally. This is like history stuff. You know, the, you know, anyway. And, you know, unlike later movies where guys were wearing pieces and, like, they had to wear, like, you know, like the Superman movies, they had to wear his plastic and shit. Like, you, you can't have definition. <laughs> this guy's walking around, like, I see the crown and everything. How the hell did they get away with that? Um, so he probably digged this, like, oh, boy, I don't think the girls are going to get after this. Um, <laughs> seriously, though, folks. Yeah, that, that, uh, yeah. Also, the thing is, he's supposed to be part of this tribe of of these. How do we even? How do we? Uh, barbaric traditional male, yeah, but you know, sort of, taking to the level of like the way feminists males, you know, really nasty and chauvinistic of, and caveman type. It's sort of like these Italian post nuke things that sprung out post Mad Max. You know, the movies. You know, what I'm talking about the ones with Mark Gregory and all these other guys, and. But it's a precursor to that because he never really becomes the hero in a way. No. It's a very strange movie. So he actually destroys their society. Destroys their society, but that's a successful thing in a way because the society is all built on lies. Hey, it's like a burger. Like Demolition Man in America. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, society is all built on lies. And, and, and I don't know. I saw it when it first came out. Shh. 
And <laughs> I saw some double bill. I was almost fucking destroyed on the man, but the man who fell to earth. Oh boy. Yeah, you watch these two depressing movies that come out like, kill me now, please. And saying uh, very different things about gender politics. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. I'm not like that. But, uh, <laughs> um, very. I wonder what they thought. I think it's Warner Brothers when he delivered this movie. Yeah. Foreman mm-hmm. and and they're like, ah, oh, it's got Sean Crowley. We can see the box office potential now. And somebody whispers in the air, "Did you see the offense?" And then <laughs> I'm like, well, Bond, Bond, Bond. Did you did you see the offense? No, no, it's okay, Bond. Have and you watched the John Borman fiction lately? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then they watch the Russians and like. Where's the Aston Martin? <laughs> and, and you know what's funny? Though? I think this movie, at a very young age, got me really interested in really skinny girls with pointy nipples. <laughs> I mean, Charlotte Rampling was so hot in this. She's so hot in everything. I really enjoy her stuff. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> She's so hot in everything. But you know, really, that wasn't my kind of thing. And then I was like, ooh, what was this? But, um, it just takes too many turns. You know, it's also one of those films that has many climaxes, no pun intended, that by the time we get to this very, two, you, you name check 2001, you, you, you get to this very 2001-ish ending, and it's like, oh, if I was trying to catch up, it lost me. Yeah. But that being said, I still think it needs to be seen by people, to be experienced, and I've read some very heady, philosophizing crazy ass motherfucking writers <laughs> take this apart and review it like it's a new testament so I mean it's you know I have the beholder for a lot of these things everything we do is I have the beholder you know but I can't imagine people trying to take this film seriously post oh, 70s people you know, have... 70s criticism yes but nowadays it's like a party film you watch this with your friends yeah. get drunk and laugh at it <laughs> no 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 people have really seriously taken this you know and and Okay. <laughs> all right, let's move on. All right, so next up, he does another Sydney Lumet film, but, whew, all right. Murder on the Orient Express. What a funny little man. Must be a frog. Yet another, yes, this actual dialogue, and that was Connery's line. Uh, yet another of those vintage 1970s big-budget Starfucker productions. And holy shit, it's yet another Sydney Lumet job. What, did Connery and Sid have something going on? A lot of washed-up 40 stars like Lauren Bacall, Ingrid Bergman, and Richard Widmark shoved up against 60 stars like Tony Perkins, Vanessa Redgrave, and George Kaloris, and a couple of up-and-comers like Michael York, Albert Finney, and the lovely Jackie Bissett, another one of my favorites. And with a few oddballs like Martin Balsam at his most annoying... This is Hercule Poirot, and he's my personal friend, repeated about 10,000 fucking times. John Gilgood and Vernon Dobcheff. Everyone gets a bit part effectively, with Connery completely obnoxious throughout. And the film is pretty uh, iffy for a Christie adaptation, particularly one with such a high profile as Orient Express. Albert Finney delivers one of the worst Poirots ever to grace the screen, practically hunchbacked and absurdly accented, looking for all the world like Chaplin playing Hitler. Strangely, they gave Ingrid Bergman Oscar nods for her minimal performance here, probably as a courtesy for earlier work on films like Casablanca and Notorious, rather than this piece of crap. And Christie herself grudgingly gave the film the nod, proving thereby that she was pretty damn old by the time this got made and probably thought she was watching another movie entirely. The soundtrack sucks serious ass, to the point where I wondered if it got replaced for the DVD. The production is surprising surprisingly cheesy, and nobody really gets the chance to shine here. Don't believe the hype on this one. Despite the star power and accolades, this train is one you want to get off on the first station. Wow, look at you. This train is you want to get off at the first station. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Although I will say, for better or worse, and depends on how you talk to, this began or beget that whole Agatha Christie thing where like oh, after yeah. this there was another one, Death on the Nile, there was another one, Peter Ustinov did it for a couple of times. And then after a quiet period of like two decades, now it's back with uh, wasn't there a remake of something? Oh, this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's his name? Did a lot of the Shakespearean things. Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh, yeah. There you go. Yeah, and he's doing another one now. So, I mean, but Murder of the Orient Express was the first of the big 70s rebirth of this kind of picture. And it actually got so bad. Do you remember that Sellers did one? Peter Sellers yes. did one. And then, then we had just like the Sidney Tuller... Werner Oland days, we had Usunov play Charlie Chan. There were all kinds of weird spinoffs there. Yep. How do I feel about this? I thought it was very dull. Yeah. I, I, sir, it was very dull. It was. Sidney Lumet's a good director for the most part. Remember, the guy keep TV and then just hit it big with these heavy, hard hitting, hit you on the head with a hammer kind of dramas. But really, it never grabbed me. Not to say it's a bad film. To someone, they might like it, but not for me. So next up, he does a couple of things that I don't know if you need to cover those. The Wind and the Lion being the more notable one. Oh, oh, I do. Uh, actually, there just two briefly. I want to name check. Uh, one was Ransom, which is uh, with Ian McShane. This is one of these British Lion movies, Fox films that British Lion was going under, or the British television company. It was like it was supposed to take place in Iceland or something. And Connery, Scandinavia, sorry, and Connery is like this guy who's like in charge and these terrorists have a plane load of hostages or then they get them off the plane and then a lot of it takes place on land. Very odd, kind of unfocused film. It's one of, one of these pictures where right after Murder on the Orient Express, Connery starts taking roles where he plays strange Middle Easterner. <laughs> whatever roles. Okay, when the lines of John Milius picture. Uh, yeah, that John Milius. So it's yep, the first time Sean Connery's working with him. Candace Bergen, who I don't know anybody who likes Candace Bergen, but some people do. Brian Keith, you know, big TV mainstay, John Houston of all people. So what the hell is this thing about? So somebody gave the young John Milius a lot of money to make a movie about... What the fuck is it about? It's like, I, I just remember Sean Connery playing... Rasul, like a fucking Iranian guy who's up against Theodore Roosevelt. Yes, that Theodore Roosevelt, played by, played by Brian Keith. And it's just a weird, it's supposed to be this big sweeping romance where this Candace Bergen falls in love with this, this guy, you know, wheels a scimitar and is against the Imperial Americans taking over in the Middle East. And it was just a strange movie. Strange to see Connery taking on such a role. Who, you know, I guess wrapped up in... Black cloth, he looked like, um, I don't know what he looked like, but he looked like something. <laughs> uh, it's a very strange movie. It was one of those pictures that did not do well. And it started, it started like a look, little bit of a slump for him. But then things picked up at the next movie. So uh, next up he does The Man Who Would Be King, a generally lighthearted and comedic pseudo-adventure film from none other than John Huston from a Rudyard Kipling book. 
think more along the lines of the Richard Chamberlain, King Solomon's Mines, or Romancing the Stone, than something like Zulu, Gunga Din, or the original King Solomon's Mines. Kane is at his most comic throughout as a surviving member of a pair of ne'er-do-well decommissioned British officers in India around the turn of the century who decide that things are getting too regulated where they are, so they take a handful of guns and head off to the remote wilds of Afghanistan, help a tribal leader defeat his enemies in a land grab, then double-cross him and take over to live as kings. Unbelievably, they succeed in this plan, with the less cautious Connery, who survives being shot with an arrow, being proclaimed king and a god among men. Unfortunately, things go wrong when they decide it's time for a little pussy, and he decides to convince the locals against the priest's will that God can in fact join with mortal women. For whatever reason, his chosen decides to bite him and prove he's only immortal after all. Connor is condemned to death by crossing a rope bridge across the ravine, which they then cut. Kane survives to tell the tale to Roger Kipling. There's a lot about this film that would appeal to fans of something like Zulu, but it's a weird mix of too much comedy and somewhat gritty adventure film to actually work. Tagging the fact that the DVD of this is actually an 8-track Laserdisc-style flipper where the movie cuts short at the hour and 15 mark, and as you're sitting there baffled while the screen went black, you have to flip the disc with no warnings to see the last hour, and it's not exactly Primo Houston or Connery for that matter. This one's all about Kane who's more hunched and fawning cockney psychic than his usual, I hate to say suave, but his more winning self that you get in other films. It's not bad. Kane kind of saves it, but it's not a great film either. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange thing. Yeah, uh, they're this buddy team, and um, they're, both, they're both really pushing the cockney things, uh, especially Kane. And, but the thing is, as the, as the movie progresses, Sean becomes the more unlikable of the two guys. With his with his impetuous attitudes and his get rich quick schemes, they make a good team. I mean, far be it. They they make a great team of actors working together. By the time the the movie's done, you know, you're you're actually kind of like, well, Sean's gone. Okay, next. You know, it's like <laughs> Michael Caine becomes the winning face in this picture. Very strange movie. John Huston. A lot of his films in the 70s and early 80s were very very bizarre. Not the same guy. It is the same guy who made classic films earlier, years earlier. But uh, I don't know what the hell he was doing when uh, he decided to do this. A very strange movie. Although it's gotten a lot of accolades, I mean, it's our only modern Gunga Din type picture. I know what he's doing. He's drinking really hard. <laughs> he's drinking really hard, but, you know, how can you focus? <laughs> He's surrounded by a bunch of hard drinkers. Hey, we um, do it. <laughs> we do it. For the most part. Um, strange movie, but followed by a very pleasant film, I think, in a way. Yeah, a bridge too far, he does. Richard Attenborough. Oh, did you want to skip Robin and Marion? Yeah, go ahead, do Robin and Marion. I don't want to do them both. No. <laughs> uh, Robin and Marion, Richard Lester. Yes, that Richard Lester. Hard Day's Night, Superman. Sean Connery plays Robin Hood. Uh, Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> Plays Maid Marian, Robert Shaw, Nicole Williamson, Denil Melliot, blah, blah, blah. This was a great big romantic fluffinutter of a movie. The thing, the conceit about this picture was that it's Robin and everybody much, much older, years and years later. Oddly enough, Richard Harris is in this, and the strange thing was they had just co-starred in a movie about five years previous, and now Richard Harris, due to his drinking, I presume, seems to have aged 15 years to Sean Sr. So, I... I very uh, a lot of people love this movie for its heavy romanticism romanticism Audrey Hepburn had not been seen on a film for a long time they have absolutely no chemistry <laughs> I don't know what the story I, I never found her appealing I no. don't know I don't care <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's but uh, Sean was you know definitely delivering some late 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 period machismo 
with this, it's a very sweet movie in a way, and it's also a very downbeat film. You know, sort of like Everybody Dies. But I, d- I did want to name check that. I also wanted to name check before we got to the picture you just started to mention. Another one where Sean is playing a, a man of Middle Eastern descent. What the fuck is this? <laughs> um, he plays an Arab oil conglomerate. Guy who owns our Arab oil conglomerates. I saw it here. Allah Akbar. Yeah, yeah. Sort of like Kalali Abdul Musin. Yes. All right. His co-star on this is someone you might like, Cornelia Sharp, who is an it girl for the moment. She's in a very strange reincarnation of Peter Proud, if you remember that. Yes, I do. But this, it's a very strange picture with a bizarro cast. It's almost like one of those Euro crime movies. We have Adolfo Celli in this and Charles Chioffi and a lot of familiar faces from TV at the time. This was a huge bomb in the theaters because it was like, you know, political thriller. And I'm like, really? There's a lot going on pre-Iraq, Iran. Do we want to make like America, America, <laughs> the UK's <laughs> biggest action hero, like play a Middle Eastern guy? I don't know. I'm not saying anything negative about it, but I'm saying probably one of the reasons why I did not make much money. Yeah. So, uh, how is Sean in the role? He's serviceable. Uh, again, another strange choice by him. Next to you. So, next to Bridge Too Far, Richard Attenborough, who is more famous for hosting nature specials. Oh, wait, that was his brother, David. Yeah, well, he directed The Sand Pebbles, Jurassic Park, and Gandhi. Oh. There's a few stinkers like Magic, A Chorus Line, and Dr. Doolittle. You tell me what to make of this guy. His work's all over the fucking place. It seems like the bulk of his filmography is taken up with war films, of which this is only one endless three-hour-long snooze fest among the many. Connery stands around in a beret like some ersatz Montgomery, plotting an incursion to the Netherlands well inside the German occupation of World War II. You see much more engaging war films, whether out of Britain, the U.S., or Italy. Literally, the only reason this one's not relegated to the dustbin of history is its amazing cast, which includes Wolfgang Price, Dirk Bogard, Sean Connery, Ryan O'Neill, Gene Hackman, Michael Caine, Anthony Hopkins, James Caan, Maximilian Schell, Liv Ullman, Elliot Gould, Ben Cross, Daniel Elliott, Lawrence Olivier, and Robert Redford. As you'd expect from a cast this huge, most folks don't get more than a scene or two to sink or swim, even with its Brobdingnagian length. Yes, there's a reason the only Attenborough anybody remembers this day is David. If, like myself, you were forced to sit through all three and a half hours of Gandhi in one sitting, you know exactly what to expect here, and trust me, Gandhi was a better film. I saw this when it came out. I was really curious with the cast. Connery had been in, and we didn't really discuss it. One of his earliest uh, film was he was in. The, he had a bit part in The Longest Day, something very similar to this about World War II and pretty much D-Day and that whole thing here. And so I was really curious about. You know, I do love a good. You know, I have some Where Eagles Dear, the Dirty yeah. Dozen, are still yeah. like my go-to. Hell's like heroes. Yeah. Yeah, I I pull them out. You know, the wife says, "You gonna watch that again?" Yeah, I am because it's really good. <laughs> so you know. Even though it was Attenborough, I was like, I'll see this. But it's too choppy. It's too choppy, leading me to believe, and I'm probably right, there's like a five-hour version somewhere. This would have made a much better miniseries or two-parter film. They were doing this back in the day, if you recall. Mm -hmm. They were doing two-parter movies, and it probably would have been much better to actually cut this in half. It might have been more satisfying, because it is now, it's much more, it's too choppy, and people come and go and they they wanted to save the big battle at Arham and the Netherlands to be the main thing they kept returning to that so does Sean leave make an impression not really yeah 
Um, I don't think anyone does in this thing. No. And the cast is incredible. It's really an incredible cast. It's like, fuck, if we made a movie like that, you couldn't make a movie like that nowadays. Uh, you know how much money this costs, please? <laughs> I mean, it cost a lot then. But, but you know, you couldn't make a movie like this today. It's it's crazy. I mean, I guess the Avengers pictures come pretty close with, you know, the star power and that. But, but they're still signed to, like, your main movie contracts, so it's right. still better off. It's not like, okay, every movie I can ask for more money, look at me on the star. It's like, well, you're signed for five or six movies at this rate, so even though you're getting more popular, fuck you, you still got to be that rate. Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. So uh, next up he does The Great Train Robbery. Mm. Michael Crichton, author-turned-director who gave us such works as The Andromeda Strain, Calma, Looker, and Jurassic Park, again with that one. And Westworld. Not to mention that, and Westworld. Not to mention that favorite of the geriatric crowd, E.R., brings us a lushy photograph period piece. Connery wants to get in a silly mustache, dons top hat and greatcoat for this 1800s heist film, mostly notable for its gorgeous set design, a sequence where Connery is climbing around and nearly falling off the roof of a moving train, and a stunning Leslie Ann Downs seducing the man while stripping down from a merry widow on thigh highs, which is almost worth the look for that five minutes alone. Otherwise, it's overly long and somewhat inconsequential. A typical major budget looking backwards film of the period, a decade whose obsessions for the past were almost as pronounced as those of today. I did like Donald Sutherland running around in green-faced corpse paint, smuggled aboard the train in question in a coffin. Pamela Salem and Andre Morell also appear. There's an obnoxious score by Jerry Goldsmith. A lot of bad scores in these films. And it's produced by, wait for it, Dino De Laurentiis, only a year off from his disastrous remake of King Kong, which nearly sunk him. It's funny. It's like Donald Sutherland was subbing for Michael Caine in this. <laughs> yes. It's like Michael wasn't available, so we got Donald Sutherland. The doll looks fine. I mean, they're they make a, a welcome, enjoyable team. Leslie Ann Down does look terrific in this. It's it's a fun picture. These throwback movies are so tough to do yeah. that Michael Crichton, who really didn't have a lot of credits, but he had some successful pictures prior to this, that they gave it to him, you know, because this is you have to be a deft filmmaker to pull this off. He did fine with it, I think. I think it's probably more fondly remembered today than it was then when it was first when it first came out. I yeah. enjoy. I I enjoyed it. I I haven't seen it in a while, so I'll admit that as well. So uh, next up, he does Meteor, one of the your favorite movie. <laughs> People really hate this film. It's for a disaster film of the period. Eh, it's on par with the China Syndrome. So <laughs> why don't you stick a broom up my ass and let me sweep the floor on my way out? So asks Sean Connery <laughs> in yet another his grumpy old man roles as he <laughs> as a former NASA scientist dragged back into action. <laughs> Sorry, that was good. Uh, when a freak interstellar collision sends a five-mile-wide meteor headed straight for Earth in what is seen as an extinction-level event. While even in these pre-Reagan days, we have some sort of Star Wars set up to unleash nuclear death on the commies, which they plan to repurpose to take out the comet. Technically, it was intended for that originally, hence Connery quitting his job there. There's a lot of Cold War political maneuvering to explain things away, save face and get the commies to admit the existence of their own version directed at us, and get the two superpowers to cooperate and direct both against the meteor menace, rather than continue our decades-long detente of mutually assured destruction. Or as Connery intones, if you think you can find an answer by burying your heads over in our blanket full of shit, I'll be in the bar. 
As you can tell, this makes Meteor something of a problematic film. Ostensibly yet another fun 70s Star Fucker disaster film, too much of the running time is devoted to this political thriller intrigue business as if someone crossed the Star Chamber, War Games, and the Manchurian Candidate with the towering Inferno, Avalanche, Earthquake, etc., etc., etc. Things only start working in the second half of the film where Connery's having this half-assed thing with Natalie Wood and there's all these cheap-ass rear projection and plastic model special effects. You'd like it over here. Power cuts, strikes, rakes, riots, high crime rates, we've got everything. In between the Oval Office Kremlin negotiations, you get a lot of reused footage from Avalanche, now transplanted to Switzerland and without Rock Hudson, some business in Hong Kong and such like as smaller media fragments hit various global locations. Meantime, everyone watches a lot of TV news, plays cards or chess, drinks coffee, and Connery grumbles a lot while a clearly aging Natalie Wood attempts to schmooze with him. There were some really fun disaster films in the 70s. I, mean, I recall enjoying Juggernaut, Avalanche, and the airport films in particular, but Meteor's just strange. It's part space opera, part cheap-ass Shaw Brothers science fiction. Think stuff like War in Space and you get the idea. Part political thriller with hammy actors like Martin Landau, Carl Malden, and Henry Fonda, and only partially is it a disaster film. Does it work? Well, it's got some quotable lines from a curmudgeonly Connery, but no central personal relationships or stories to hang itself on, however unintentionally funny those tend to be in these sort of pictures. It's also damn slow when you have to wait really late into the film for any real payoff. Yeah, well, it's it's probably the only picture that was produced between American International Pictures and the Shaw Brothers. And nobody wanted it, so they got released by Orion, who was in bankruptcy at the time. <laughs> so this, this gives you an idea of where, where this was headed. I saw it. I, you know, my memory is of it being okay-ish. I remember the climax being full of mud. Like yeah. something happened, and like, I don't know, it was a missile or something, an earthquake, whatever. And Connery and... and and Natalie Wood, who looks really good in wet mud, um, or, or running around in wet mud. But aside of that, unless you've got a fixation for a busty older woman in wet mud, it's probably not for you. Yeah. So uh, next up, <laughs> <laughs> he does something called Cuba. I don't have anything to say on that one unless you do. Another political thriller, obviously. And then he does Outland. Now, you'll hear a lot that this is some sort of sci-fi western, but it's really not until the rather belabored attempt at recreating High Noon in the last half hour. Connery is a federal marshal who's too mouthy for his own good, getting sent to these out-of-the-way crap jobs. Here he's sent to clean up a mining outpost on one of Jupiter's moons. Apparently the suits have really upped productivity by making their small crew work longer and harder, but there's been a rash of miners freaking out and having angel dust-style hallucinations, inevitably resulting in their death. It falls to some galactic no-dos or upper speed cocaine, whatever you choose to call it, that the miners are taking because it lets them handle these extra long shifts without sleep. And of course, traffic in the stuff isn't exactly above board, so it's up to Connery to bust the drug ring. It's really no surprise that the kingpin behind all this shit is the same corporate prick who's been pushing his men so hard in the first place. He's an arsehole. He's a very powerful asshole, so don't mess with him. About the best you can say for this film is amidst its very confused tone. There are attempts to at least lighten it a bit and borrow some of the set design from contemporaneous films like Alien, The Black Hole, and Saturn 3. So it looks nice. Mm. And while it's tiresome seeing Connery struggles to keep his family together and such like, and he's no Charlton Heston, the man who this part was really clearly written for, he certainly works well enough in the John Agar, stiff upper lip, one-note, tough authority figure role he's put in here. I've watched this one many times over the years, but never really warmed to it entirely. But it has enough atmosphere, nice set design, and promise to revisit time and again. So there's something to it. Well, that's well said. I, I I sort of entirely agree with you on that one. Yeah, it's it's hard movie to warm to. I mean, it's, a lot of people see a lot of stuff in this movie that neither one of us do. He's fine in it. He's very fine in it. And you know, 
as he's getting older. It's it's a good role for him, actually. It's a good fit. It's nice to see him doing science fiction. I just not quite sure this was the the outlet. Yeah, what it what it could have been, but. There's some good things after this, too. So, Outland, a good, entertaining film. Uh, you want to call it High Noon and Outer Space? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, Frances Sternhagen, an uh, older actress who had her moment around this time. She did a couple of films. She really was outstanding. Almost steals a film, actually. Yes, true. She's likably crusty as the doctor. Yeah, the doctor, you know... Pretty much as his only ally at some point. So, yeah, it's got a lot of good points to it. So I, I'd recommend this one. So, uh, next up, he does a really weird one about Zardos. Time Bandits. When one of your cast members goes by the name Tiny Ross, you know what you're in for. That's right, midgets. Sadly, more willow than under the rainbow little cigars of terror of Tiny Town. This oft-cited post-Monty Python oddity is far less than its reputation. Much akin to the similarly much beloved but almost unwatchable Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Fellow Python alums John Cleese and Michael Palin are joined by big guns like Connery and Ralph Richardson, plus lesser lights like Shelley Duvall and Who's the Boss's Catherine Hellman, of all people, and a crew of little people, the only famous one being the wizard himself, David Rappaport. That's really all I have to say about it. It's, I'm totally nonplussed by this film. I always was. And the fact that it has a cult following was just baffling to me. Well, well you know, this is Terry Gilliam. This is an early Terry Gilliam film. I... I actually liked this when it first came out. And I also liked, I think, Terry Jones did Jabberwocky, a more, much more bizarre film. These were of their time. These were early 1980s. At this time, the Pythons could do whatever they wanted. Oh, yeah, all that crap they were putting out. What was that other one that they did? You mentioned Jabberwocky, but there was another one he did right after this. Oh, uh, Baron Munchausen. Like, what the hell? Or whatever. I liked that. Right. Did you really? I did. <laughs> wow. Nice fever. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't like it that much. I'm just kidding. But yeah, it's a very strange movie about a kid uh, played by... You know, if you're going to put a kid as your star in a movie, please make him likable. <laughs> I mean, not too likable where you want to snap his neck and kill him and probably kill his family, but <laughs> because they had him. But but don't make him unlikable. And one of the problems with these kind of pictures, this time period, they, they, they put these vapid homogenized, interchangeable, unlikable kids in the role of, like, the star. Trying to recreate E.T. or something. Yeah, and you just really, it's hard. You have to watch these movies and follow the kid. Now, the kid teams up with people, and they time travel, uh, or world travel. They do whatever they do. You know, Connery shows up as King Agamemnon. Uh, he's fine. He's fine in the role. Um, lots of cool stuff happens. Lots of uncool stuff happens. By the end, it's just a very, very strange movie. You mentioned some of the cast members, very strange people. David Warner is like evil, personified. It has a huge cult following. Yeah. And it's Terry Gilliam. You like Terry Gilliam? You're going to really enjoy this. If you can go either way on Terry Gilliam, you might be a little nonplussed by it. And if you really don't like Terry Gilliam, I wouldn't recommend it. That being said. So he does another Bond film. This was another comeback, if you will. He once again got plied with a lot of money to do it and just did a walk on and left, which was Never Say Never Again, which we had talked about during our, both of our Bond things. And I think in a lot of ways it was better than the Roger Moore film, which is right around the same time, which is View to a Kill. But it was just a remake of Thunderball. You know, we talked about it in the past. So next, he does a really strange film once again, but I think a much better one. Sword of the Valiant, The Legend of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. 
It's a strange British cross between the more typical sword and sorcery flick of the day, like Hawk the Slayer, the mystical quest film like Circle of Iron, and Doctor Who, complete with a cheap, inappropriate Casio keyboard soundtrack and a quirky, low-budget, almost television feel. Miles O'Keefe, who made his name in similar films like Tarzan the Ape Man, Adder of the Fighting Eagle, which we talked about in our Joe D'Amato show, Blade Master, and Iron Warrior, is a page who's dubbed Knight on the Fly when he's the only one dumb enough to challenge the mystical green glitter-bedecked Sean Connery when he barges into the Arthurian Hall and throw snark. After losing a weird challenge to cut off Connery's head, which he does, but our favorite Scotsman just puts it back on again, O'Keefe takes a page and heads off into the wide world to live out his last year and try to find a way to trick Connery out of his own shot at decapitation. There are a veritable shitload of British character actors in this one, starting with Connery and heading all the way down to midget David Rappaport again. John Reese davies Douglas Wilmer, Ronald Lacey, Peter Cushing, Trevor Howard. It gets silly at points just how many folks were called in for more or less a two-minute walk-on part here. As a film... Eh, it's probably on the level of many of these cheesy films of the era. I mean, you can't exactly say it's much worse than Crawler the Beastmaster, and there's more recognizable name walk-ons here. You'll just have to deal with long stretches where nothing very interesting happens, and that perfectly atrocious Doctor Who in the 80s level score. Connery pretends he's doing Shakespeare or something, which is just ridiculous, but in the context of the rest of this cheesy PG-level fantasy film, it sort of fits. I think this was canon. Wasn't this canon? Yeah, it's like weird to see Sean Connery doing a canon movie. I don't remember a damn thing about this picture, except <laughs> I do remember renting out one of those big box VHS videotapes around the time this popped up mm-hmm. and watching it. I just can't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, it, sorry, something. folks. All right, so next up comes a film that I have nothing whatsoever to say about because I didn't like it when it came out and I totally forgot it existed. Highlander. Anything you want to say about that one? It made a TV show, and that's all I remembered was that guy. Who was that guy with the long hair? Adrian Paul, the guy who looked like Sean Connery. Yeah, but that's all I remember. I didn't you remember there was a movie. You're kidding me. You're shitting me. I'm not kidding you. You don't remember I, Highlander? I blocked it out that much. <laughs> the Russell, the, the one with Christopher Lambert. Yeah, Chris Rowland, right, exactly. This is something that came on HBO or whatever the hell right around that time, like 84, 85. And I saw it once. I was like, that ah, sucks. And that was the end of it. I totally forgot it existed. <laughs> I didn't want to rewatch it. It might be the best thing since Toast. <laughs> I doubt that, but go ahead. Wow. Okay, so Russell McKay was video guy, video director. He did this terrible movie about pigs in Australia. I forgot what it's called. Razorback? A lot of people like it. It's about wild boars, actually, but it was really vicious, nasty. So he did this, where... I'm still rolling over that one. Christopher Lambert plays a man who never dies, Connor McLeod, a Scotsman. Of course he's French, but don't ask. And he was taught by the Spaniard, played by Sean Connery, the ways of the swordsmen, Highlanders, as we could say, and, and they, they're immortals. And, of course, Clancy Brown, at the height of his villainous fame, was the evil guy. I forgot what the hell he was called. But they chase each other over the years, and then they end up in New York, of course. It's got a Queen soundtrack, which is pretty good, actually. Oh, yeah, Connery plays Juan Sanchez Villas Lobos Ramirez, and he tutors, he tutors uh, our French friend into sword fighting and shit like that. Of course, he dies in this movie, but he comes back in the sequel. I'm actually surprised you never saw this. It's uh, uh, I mean, oh, I saw it once, but I totally blocked it out of my memory. So I just remember a TV show. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, I like Christopher Lambert. His whole career started with this picture big time. 
Connery's very serviceable in this. Glancy Brown's really evil incarnate. Something named Roxanne Hart sounds, I don't know why she sounds familiar was in this, but there's a lot of unfamiliar people in this movie. But does have a really cool Queen soundtrack? I said that already. And it's just, it begat three sequels and a TV series, which I never watched. Yep. Yes, so next up is The Name of the Rose. The guy behind Art House Fave the Lover directs his only other film of note, and it's a weird one. Tapping the only Umberto Echo book anyone ever heard of besides Foucault's Pendulum, this one can't decide whether it's a mystery with an unusual setting and protagonist. The last time anyone came up with something this odd was Judge D and the Monastery Murders, which was a much, much better film and long overdue for DVD or Blue, by the way. Get on a stick, somebody. Or some grotty period piece about post-medieval monks living in sackcloth upon a snowbound mountain peak. Being Echo, there's all sorts of illusions and nonsense, but it's hardly as engaging as, say, an Alan Moore work, and the film is shot in dark pastel tones and haze throughout, so it's less than visually arresting to boot. Connery is a de facto monk detective sharing a cell with none other than Jack Nicholson wannabe Kristen Slater in a bad haircut. <laughs> there are a series of murders by Church Bell, Bathtub, and Poison Book. Slater gets inexplicably banged by a hot mute of a dusky Spanish girl, who's got a great ass, by the way. Then has the balls to walk around whining and feeling guilty about it. And the whole thing is fairly pointless. Some big names, Connery, the up-and-coming Slater, Amadeus is F. Mary Abraham, a just pre-Beauty and the Beast Ron Perlman as a deformed monster of a monk, and perpetual bit player Vernon Dobchev, and some nice sets, but it's too big-budget and confused in tone to actually work. Oh, and there's one ringer in the cast, Italian cult film regular Donald O'Brien of Kaoma, Menagia, Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, Images in a Convent, and Glorious Bastards, Zombie Holocaust, Ghost, and The Sect, among others. And that brings up an important point here. In the hands of some Italian genre filmmakers, it'd probably have been a classic cult film done in the 70s. You'd likely have a more watchable, measuredly paced film focusing on the atmosphere and camera work. Instead, you get this grotty, depressing, hard-to-watch snooze fest that at one point has a much better reputation than it ever deserved. About the best you could say here beyond the nice sets is that Connery finally seems to be shedding his on-screen irascibility. He's almost likable here. I'm back. Oh, okay, so... Name of the Rose. You know, I, 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 I see where you like it. And he did win Best Actor at British Film Awards. Best Leading Actor, which is something. But uh, I never warmed to this film. Uh, yeah. It should have worked, but it doesn't. It should have worked, yes. I mean, obviously you like it much more than I do. A lot of people did like this film when it came out. Um, readers of the book, you know, it, it was a huge bestseller. But I get you. I think... Hell, even probably Terry Gilliam could have made it back better, more appealing to me, named the Rose, than, than the way it just turned out. Yeah. Yeah, if an Italian cult guy made this, this could have been huge, tremendous. But I don't know what else to say about it. It just never really grabbed me. It has potential, but bombs out really badly. So next up, here's a couple of films that I had nothing to say about that you probably will. Oh. The Untouchables, The Presidio. Kill me. Did you see The Untouchables? <laughs> Since 87. <laughs> okay, at least you saw it. Yeah. It's Brian De Palma, of all people. Yes. And um, sometimes Brian De Palma does weird things. Like, you know, he's done some really cool movies. Blowout, Body Double, Carrie. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Carrie, good lord. Uh, no, I mean, lots of really good fucking movies. But then he did this, which is really good. Very violent. Sorry, folks, I'm having a sip. I like this. I'm not one that people are entirely crazy about, though. I think tonality has issues. 
You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty much, you know, the film version of The Untouchables. Elliot Ness, that whole thing, Robert yep. Stack, if you all remember the black and white TV show, even the reruns, DVD, Blu-ray box sets. Really gritty American TV show, black and white, I think. Robert yes. Stack, you know, big piece of wood. <laughs> playing <laughs> playing Elliot Ness, real life guy, you know, who was chasing Al Capone in the the underworld in New York and Chicago. So Kevin Costner, who's still riding high over a couple of pictures in that period, including Robin and Mary, um, no, including Robin Hood, where Sean had a cameo as uh, King Richard, stars as Elliot Ness. I think he's fine. I think the cast is really interesting in this. Sean plays this Irish older man, this this older cop who's like his sidekick Robert De Niro <laughs> as Al Capone you know again with the weight and the prosthetics really showing scenery is actually super violent <laughs> it's actually scary it's actually almost Brian De Palma's channeling Scorsese for this picture in, in some, yeah. some some way uh, you know for lack of a really cool 70s and 80s soundtrack this would be a Scorsese picture directed by Brian <laughs> De Palma I liked it then. I watched it. I watched it on a few viewings. It's not a go-to movie for me, but I respect its filmmaking. I respect the, the cast is fucking amazing. David Mamet wrote the screenplay, which means you got fucking every other word. Yes. Fuck and fucking hate you. Fuck and fuck. You know, it's Mamet, right? <laughs> or Mamet. If you go to the theaters, David Mamet. Fuck you. It's David Mamet. So. <laughs> David fucking Mamet, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, if he listens to this, he'll contact us. Well, fuck you on David Mamet. Uh, Billy Trago, you know, at the height of his, whatever it was, plays Frank Needy. He's in this thing, too. It's a, Andy Garcia, before he looked, he gained a lot of weight, doesn't even look like a human being anymore, is in this. Uh, he did. Did you see? I saw some Andy Garcia. He's in some fucking ad for some show he's in now. I'm like, who is that? See, <laughs> wow. Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> Patricia Clarkson, who was a thing around this time period, was cast as the female lead. But it's, it's a it's a machismo thing, you know. Really, yeah. it's it's a bunch of guys. Costner is really good. I have to say, Costner is really good in this. I'm not one of those Costner haters. You know, the guy the guy he has a couple of pictures where he's like way 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 above average, and he's doing really good work. I know he gets a lot of shit for a lot of things he does, but he's really good. This Connery is very good as Jimmy Malone. He actually won his only to date Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for this movie. So it's a super violent. As again, as I said, I, I mean, it's the closest thing is like a Scorsese movie directed by, by Brian De Palma. It doesn't look anything like a De Palma picture. It's got a couple of those tracking shots he does, but then he stole them from Argento. So, you know. And Hitchcock. And Hitchcock. And Argento stole them from Hitchcock, yeah. The Presidio is a very likable Peter Himes. They work together on Outlander. Yeah. It's a very likable cop film cop film it takes place in I don't know it was a naval a naval academy where there's a murder Mark Harmon another guy who aged terribly doesn't look anything like himself look at a piece of Pillsbury dope um, <laughs> he was the it boy well, he, you know, he, he was. did many movies but the girls used to love him back in the, in the late wasn't age. he the Beastmaster oh no. <laughs> oh he was a good looking guy Mark Harmon and now he's for years he's been on NCIS uh, yeah, I don't watch that shit. It's like old folk stuff. My mother loves that crap. Every CSI or CIS or Ice T, every time I go over this place. I try to be, you know, <laughs> hanging in there. Anyway, so there's a murder on the uh, naval base. He's a cop. 
And, you know, Connery's in charge of the naval base. It's like one of those pictures. And he likes the, the commander's daughter. You know, you can see where this yeah. is going. Meg Ryan, uh, fuck me, fuck me fame is in this as, as Connery's daughter. Jack Warden. Remember Jack Warden? I love Jack Warden. He said, Don Calfa, Return of the Living Dead. It's also in this movie. It's a bit a forgettable time waster, but it's 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 fun. It's not a horrible movie, to be honest. Leading up to Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Typical Indiana Jones picture, a formula that I found much more enjoyable in imitators like the Angelina Jolie Tomb Murder films or even the Nicolas Cage National Treasure ones. The, these parallels were made even more obvious by much of the opening half hour or so of this one, where all the bullshit flying biplanes and racing jeeps with Nazis while dodging buzzsaws and temples is put aside. And he actually does the professional investigation bit, digging through old books and maps for clues, finding secret tombs beneath libraries that used to be churches, all that part I loved. But then it goes right back to the Spielberg kid shit and it's New City. He's got another generic bimbo who turns out to be one of the Nazis, an almost unrecognizable Daniel Elliott, looks like his own great-grandfather. And the only real selling point here is a very safe, surface-level reconciliation relationship between Ford and Connery as his obsessive father, which is pretty cute until you realize it goes no deeper than a fucking Hallmark card. And how many times are they going to milk this Nazis looking for a MacGuffin shtick? At least Temple of Doom had the exotic Bombay thing going for it. And that fucking score, it's obtrusive, very inappropriate in quieter scenes, and just plain annoying. Tone it down a few notches, you're supposed to augment the story. Not stand front and center and demand a spotlight throughout. I really, really, really hate, I can't put a final point on this, John Williams, the cheese whiz of film scoring. Fuck you, John Williams. So, what do you got to say about this one? <laughs> Was this because you used to go out with his daughter? No. <laughs> <laughs> He's the worst. And everybody's like, oh, John Williams. Oh, John Williams can fucking conduct his way out of a paper bag. The, the bag would go like, I'm in a serious conversation like about my father dying of cancer. Shut up, you asshole. <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. <laughs> I love one of my favorite movies of all time. Fuck you if you disagree. <laughs> it's the first Indiana Jones and the last crusade. No, not that one. No, the original uh, one. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. I really like that. I, I could watch that again. I dislike immensely Definitely. the second one, Temple yeah. of Doom. I did not like that. And um, I like these kind of things for the most part. This was slightly better because Connery was in it, and nice to see him running around. It's it was a bit sad to see him playing doddering old man, because in actuality he wasn't in his doddering old man phase of real life. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so I mean, instead of capitalizing on Ford is the son, and he's the father, and he, let's say there's 25 years in difference, you know, at that time, whatever age difference, or 30 years, they didn't have to have him playing like. Do you remember the Doctor Who with Peter Cushing as the elderly Doctor Who? The yes, two movies? I do. Yes, I do. And why did they do that? Because they could have had Cushing playing his natural age at the time. It would have been a, a much better Doctor Who film, I think, right? Yeah, sure. And, and that's what they did here. They had Connery playing much, much older than he was, almost doddering and almost on the edge of senility, but still sprightly and still, you know, he can handle a gun, handle a stupid... Uh, what was the umbrella he had around? And, you know, that, that Nazi thing wears thin, although I think, seriously, folks, I thought the fourth one was better, two and three. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Ex except for the beginning with the refrigerator. 
Where Indiana Jones gets in the refrigerator to to escape the atom bomb blast. I think I think one and four really good. I it, it, this could have been much better. That's now, where I'll leave it. I jump right ahead to get to where Primus's last two films, but he did a bunch of films in this period. Hunt for Red October, the infamous one where he's supposed to be a Russian sub-commander talking with his usual accent, or very Scotch. The Russia House, uh, apparently another Highlander film. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, First Night, Medicine Man, Dragonheart. Well, hold on, hold on. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, right? Yeah, I saw it, but so what? <laughs> yeah, but Kevin Costner was in it. It was a good movie. It's a Hollywood movie. It's like, okay, but it was good. Go rewatch it, Lewis. <laughs> I, I see you. You skipped over Highlander to the quick uh-huh. where he inexplicably returns to the dead after being beheaded. So it's quite, quite a. Sir <laughs> so and the Green Knight all over again. <laughs> it's quite a fun movie, you know. You hunt for Red October. Yeah, well, it's Alec Baldwin's one of his breakout pictures. What else did we skip here? Oh, Rising Sun. Did you want? Did you want to talk about that? No, nope, go ahead. <laughs> Rising Sun is a Philip Kaufman from the right stuff. It's a very strange movie. Uh, Connery's a cop, and it's actually a really good. I highly recommend this one if you may have skipped it in your life. It goes against these really nasty, violent sexual killers. Wesley Snipes at the height of his fame. Um. Which might be pre or post the Blade films. It's really good as his as his uh, second in command, and there's some like nasty stuff going on in here. Carrie Hiroki Tagawa is really good as the villain, and there's just like crazy stuff. Jap, you know, Japanese yakuza operating in L.A. or wherever it is. Yeah, it was L.A. Tia Carrera looks really good in this and so I highly re- <laughs> I don't highly recommend it for that reason well you can it's... watch Wayne's World for that one but <laughs> yeah I met her so it's okay I got a picture of her there you go. <laughs> no but Robin Hood and Rising Sun uh, those, those those are highlights I would say where'd you want to go to from here uh, actually I jump up ahead past Dragonheart First Night in the Rock to The no. Avengers but go ahead no I want to talk about The Rock go for it <laughs> no, I love The Rock. Okay. Actually, this is this is where our friendship ends. <laughs> if there's a handful of Michael Bay movies in history, The Rock is like one of the one of the best. I mean, it's so good. You're you praising got... a Michael Bay film, man. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But you got Nick Cage as the Beatles. He plays the guy who's obsessed with the Beatles, right? He's an FBI guy. Okay. He's a little bit nerdy with a hot girlfriend. I forgot who, who it was. It doesn't matter who it is. Sean Connery's this British spy who the CIA captured, and they locked him up. So they didn't want anybody to see. They didn't want anybody to discover the secrets he knew. Okay? All right, so we got that. Ed Harris, of all people, meets a paramilitary team of psychopaths. And you got, like, William Forsyth and Candyman and all these crazy guys. They go to Alcatraz. And they kidnap, uh, they do a lockdown, they kidnap all the uh, tourists, and then they have these huge missiles. So they're like, going to blow shit up unless they get this certain thing. The only guy who could break into Alcatraz because he escaped from there is this British spy. So Nick Cage has to get him out of the secret place, use him, but he don't trust anybody. And, this, and the whole thing I liked about the conceit was maybe he's actually James Bond that they captured when he was younger. And the whole thing is, he knew who killed JFK. 
that was the big secret why the CIA kept him in prison. I really like this picture. Connery's running around, cursing like a bastard, blowing shit up, killing people. I thought it was such good fun. Yeah, I know. You can say I'm insane, crazy. Go ahead, say it. Let the record show that he just praised the Michael Bay film. <laughs> it's good. It's good. I, 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 I did. I will go. I there's two of them. Armageddon too. Shh. <laughs> What's next? The Transformers? That Sheila Booth was great. <laughs> oh, come on, man. I, I haven't even watched one of them. Are you kidding me? Even the one with Megan Fox in it? I even sat through that just to watch her. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, but you're going to discuss entrapment later for what, the obvious reasons, right? <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> next okay, up. Avengers. Avengers. We get to the Avengers. Now, all right. I remember one point you said, so the Avengers, that was good, right? And you had meant the recently released Marvel one. And for some reason, all I could think of was this one. I'm like, that would sucked. What are you talking about? Some heavy synthetic rave drug use must have been behind this late 90s attempt at reworking the Avengers series, which we devoted an entire show to at one point, into this bland to pathetic American reworking filled with British, Irish, and Scots actors. The guy behind National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Benny and June, and the all-but-forgotten Diabolique remake with Sharon Stone, brings hoity-toity art house guy Ralph Fiennes, Chinless List, the English patient, the reader, the madly fluctuating of career Uma Thurman from arty critical faves like Dangerous Liaisons and Henry and June to lowbrow mainstream junk like Pulp Fiction, Batman and Robin, and my super ex-girlfriend, Connery, and tranny comic Eddie Izzard to this deservedly reviled stinker, even digging up Patrick Mendee to do a voice-only part as Invisible Jones. Yes, that's his name. Connery's a rather doddering baddie, flipping out while showing Thurman around his terrarium, using guys in full-body teddy bear suits for no apparent reason. Furries, furries, furries. It's almost worth it just to see the evil mastermind meeting with a table full of multicolored teddy bears, one of whom takes off its head to reveal our hero of the night. Phoenix makes a good, stuffy, officious Brit, but doesn't have the personality and charm of a Patrick McNee. He may be an acceptable walk-on partner to Bond, like a transposed Felix Leiter, say, but he's no steed. Nothing about him stands out. You forget he's there the second he's off screen. Uma Thurman was still intriguingly attractive at the time, but as it's the 90s, they have to make her more tough, ballsy, and successful. Read as ball-crushing. So she's pushy, now she's a doctor, and her, quote, repartee with Phoenix is less the sort of sly sexual innuendo we used to get with Regan McNee than obvious and blows she actually introduces herself by barging into a men's club and angling for a better view of his dick in the sauna. They try, it just does not play out well at all. Like a lot of supposed worst movies of all time, it's nowhere near as bad as its reputation. I mean, just look at some of the films we already discussed tonight for more obvious candidates for that. But it is, like a lot of remakes and reboots of the period, very wrong-headed. You can't retcon history or compose today's often ridiculous societal mores on the past. Case in point. That all being said, I have to admit to actually enjoying this one in a weird way when I rewatched it for this show, so there's that much. You sick bastard. <laughs> you, re- you enjoyed this in a weird way? Yeah, it's like horribly so, fun. I'm like, oh, wow. This is... <laughs> I was so disappointed. First of all, this was at the height of yet another. This happens like every 15, 20 years. There's like all of a sudden a lot of interest in the Avengers. This is the true and only original Avengers with John Steed, Emma Peel. Diana Rigg, Patrick McNeil, this is this is it. And every so often, there's like huge interest. People start name-checking it, it comes up again. And this was the height of that, well, probably the most recent, you know, interest in the show, the TV show, the British TV show. 
So I was so psyched. Okay, they're going to do it. And I saw the cast, and I said, you know what? Okay, I, let me not prejudge. You know, Ray Fiennes has been doing these heavy, heavy British dramas previously mm -hmm. to this movie. I'm like, I don't know. Now, Uma, this is pre, much pre-Kill Bill. Oh, yeah. Had, as of his time, not shown us what she could really be capable of. I said, all right, we'll see. Then they added Sean to the picture. And then he says, directed by a guy who did one of the National Lampoon movies. I'm like, what the fuck? So, now, this is, I don't know, what, 20 years post this movie coming out. The director still says, and he wasn't made since then, like two movies, because this was a huge bomb. The director still says, my movie was two hours long. They cut it down to 80-something minutes. What feature film cost $100 million and it's cut to 80-something minutes? Yep. This one. It was probably unreleasable. You know, there's a charm in seeing these characters together. I will say that. There's, yeah. a, there's a certain charm, there's a certain warmness and satisfaction to seeing John, Steve, and Emma Peel together again, no matter who they're played by. And I'm going along with the different actors, and they don't really got a hand of what made the show work. We did a, we devoted more than one show to the original Avengers, I know, in hindsight. Yes. And I think we may have even touched on how odd and strange and in another universe this show was, but mm -hmm. there was something that made it work. This guy does not have the talent to do that. Nope. These actors did not have the talent to grasp, and, and no matter how good they are or not as actors, grasp what made the show good. So we have this, it's like somebody's idea of what that show was. Mm -hmm. And so actor's idea of what the characters were as played by these other character actors. And <clears throat> it just totally feels, until we get to the point where we have people in furry suits and civilians, <laughs> And you know what? Eddie Izzard, who was like one of Sean's henchmen, henchmen in the movie, would have been much better as like the main villain because Eddie actually sure. stood out in the picture. Sure. I don't know what to make of this. It's a huge mistake, and unfortunately, it probably proved the the end to them doing anything else with this. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, it was a film that I remember being as completely awful, and I went back and watched it again. Like, this is going to be fun. And like you know what this is so bad it's amusing. <laughs> yeah, I mean you're... just seeing these characters reworked into this ridiculous, oversexed in the wrong way, like you know not actually sexy, just like overly sexual. Oh, uh -huh. uh, this really nasty, you know I hate men, feminists. I've, the women got to be on top bullshit that was going on at the time, which is trying to come back now. You know it was just it doesn't fit. It's like you said they completely did not understand the characters or anything about the show and just tried to retcon everything and it doesn't fucking work it doesn't even try to work and that's in a way its own charm <laughs> if you look at things in that campy way so after this it was one of the last blows in Sean Connery's acting career because he doesn't do too much for a couple of years I mean he actually took like four years off after this he was in something called Finding Forrester and something called well, Entrapment well but, I, want, you know, I, want, I want to to get a couple of these things done here Sure. It just take me a minute, playing by heart. It was like a romantic comedy with, surprisingly, it was like the older person romantic comedy. Gillian Anderson, oh, I like her. Angelina Jolie's in it. Dennis Quaid, who was still a human being at the time, are on this. And it was kind of fluff. I forgot he was even in that. But Finding Forrester, wait, we're going to get to this. Finding Forrester was a Gus Van Sant movie where this poor kid from the other side of the you know, the other side of the stoops projects, whatever, was a prodigy of sorts and there was this like 
old, mean man was a recluse, and he taught this kid other things. Really good movie. It's a drama. It's a heavy drama. I, I would say, like, it brought Connery back into, like, the public eye for a bit. I got a lot of accolades. Well, no awards. Um, Entrapment, which I name-checked earlier, was sort of akin to the line of The Rock. It's directed by John Amiel, who did those uh, National Treasure movies you like, and I like them, too. And it has uh, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Douglas, Catherine Zeta-Jones, who zipped into this really curvy well, leather suits all the time. Sort of like <laughs> Emma Peel. So why do I like this? Sean <laughs> is like this older, bearded, like he looked on The Rock. He kind of got that look. Oh, I'm not that way. He kind of got that look. And he's like this older guy who's like a cat burglar, like uh, Cary Grant in that terrible Hitchcock movie everybody likes. Thief. Oh, I like that one. Catch a Thief? That's all right. But she's just hottie zipped into leather. Would she prefer a breast or a leg? Your choice. <laughs> I'm not going there. So, it depends <laughs> on who's late. So, so, she seduces him to do this huge... It's a great heist movie. You should watch it. We haven't done heist movies. We should do heist movies. No, that's a good idea. It's a good idea. It's got a great cast. Will Patton, who's always, you know, really good. Murray Chaikin, a very big thing. Rames, who we go back and forth on, but he was really good in part 17 of Mission Impossible. And Murray Chaikin himself, just because of the Nero Wolf series, will always be dear to my heart. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a fun movie if you may have skipped it or didn't really pay too much attention to it. Entrapment is great because do you remember that? Was it Grand Slam? That yes. That tiny movie with the, with the laser beams? Yep, and Klaus Kinski and Dr. Right. Shelley. That was a great one. Edward G. Robinson. Right. So you remember the lasers where people had to, like, physically just go up and above and around yep. the place you were set. So Catherine Zeta-Jones is doing this in a leather cat suit. There's your reason. And she's kind of zoptic, so I can't even picture that. <laughs> I highly recommend this film, my friends. And Sean is not bad in it either because it's a Sean show. It's fun. It's a fun movie. And for some reason... <laughs> Most of the reviews were like, but Catherine Zeta-Jones in a leather catsuit once a day ago. <laughs> now we go on to his last film of note. Yes. All right. I have a story about this one, uh, and I kind of mentioned this at the beginning. We actually made the mistake of seeing this in the theater, and we're somewhere between gobsmacked and utterly nonplussed by just how far it deviated from the original source material, its atmosphere, the fun characters from British fantasy literature, instead giving us this shit show of terrible CG, tagging in the inappropriate and ill-fitting Tom Sawyer character, and giving him and Connery more superhero than Quartermain is written by either Haggard or Moore, free reign to chew everything but the carpet tax. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So, several months to a year later, we're in a worse buy that's well out of our area. I see a great deal on a Cheech and Chong movie. I didn't know slipped out the DVD yet. Problem is, it's a two-for deal. I forget how much, but it was less than ten bucks. Either way, buy the movie by itself, it's the same price or a few bucks more. So that we have to pick a second one from this one shelving display. And the only thing on there that we didn't already have or would even consider fucking watching was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. 
This resulted in 20 minutes, I'm not kidding you, of wandering around the store, of an eternal struggle, putting the movie back and walking away, going back and trying again. It was really, really hard to give in and walk out with his fucking disc, particularly my wife mocking and taunting me the entire time. Come on, you know you want to watch the league. Everything Sean Connery's in is great, coating that guy. And this continued through the rest of the day until I was staring at the damn thing in the house. I followed it in the collection and never watched it again, only to find when I was trying to review it for the show that I must have either given it away or sold it off at some point, probably for less than a buck. Even so, I did gulp deeply and order this from the library and prep for the show, like some of the other films we're talking today. Sean Connery, that big butch bitch from the TV version of Blafem Nikita, and a cast of nobodies populate this stinker in the comic adaptation, one that bears very precious little in common with ostensible source material. There's some loser in place of the literary Invisible Man. They drop the gang more between Moriarty and Fu Manchu. Mean is an actual vampire. They tag in Dorian Gray for no real reason. And they focus on the only American author character in what's supposed to be a celebration of fun to see through British fantastic literature, Tom fucking Sawyer. There were major problems with this, even behind the scenes. Connery was told or decided this would kick off a franchise. And from what I heard at the time, not only hogged all the screen time, but wound up trying and direct portions, constantly butting heads with the director. Oddly, you won't find this on Wikipedia, possibly a whitewash job by the studio? I don't know. Suffice to say, don't take my word for it, and even the dozens of published critics who said the same and worse upon the film's release. Just realize that this piece of crap was so bad, it literally caused Sean Connery to retire from acting, and at the same time caused Alan Moore to first surrender all rights and royalties from any film made of his material, and then not long after, to give up writing entirely and immerse himself full-time in the pursuit of magic. Pause for a minute. This film caused two heavyweight creative artists to throw in the towel permanently and irrevocably, and both openly indicated that this film was the reason why. <laughs> well, the thing that saddens me the most is that David Hemmings is totally unrecognizable in this film. Oh, yeah, he was horribly bloated. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's pretty Peter Wilson where was she in she was on some TV La Femme right? yeah, yeah yeah I have yet to watch that but wasn't mm. she replaced by some hot Asian chick uh, I yeah. don't know season two or three somebody else took over I'll have to check that out then uh, <laughs> I couldn't watch it because of her I saw it on Netflix <laughs> I saw it it's like who is that it's not Peter Wilson anyway if she's not seven foot and 255 pounds I'm <laughs> <laughs> That one was a bruiser. Anyway, yeah. I like this film. No. Really? <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. I watched... No, I watched. I read the graphic novels, and I really enjoyed those. So I went out and bought everything I could that Moore wrote on Extraordinary Gentleman. Mm -hmm. What surprised to me was quite voluminous. I didn't think it was that much. And so I caught up on it. Much like I did with Watchmen, but I, I read Watchmen way before they were making a movie. So when I saw the movie, I was like, oh, so disappointed. But you know what? It wasn't horrible. I was very disappointed. But it looked like Connery was actually having a good time. It was only after the movie came out that Connery wanted to disown the film, take his name off as a producer, and the director says he fought with Connery all the time, blah, 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 much as what you just spoke. And I was like, Really? I don't see all that there, but it's hard to make, you know, and this is the thing, at least they're not doing that so much today. Oh, they did do that with Mortal Engines. 
that recent box office misfire, yeah. which they spent like $300 million on and made like $10. <laughs> Connery's the only major name in this cast. Mm -hmm. You can't make a movie costing this much money with no other names. And I think that was one of the problem. You needed some names in this beside him. I mean, right away you could see things going wrong with the casting. Mm -hmm. And although he probably made more money with this picture than he ever did in his life, they look... I, they made $17 million for just being this fucking big. Yeah, so, yeah, okay, I retired. I made $17 million of this. I made $300 billion on bond with licensing. <laughs> it did not do well, but it didn't do entirely poorly. Put it that way. Uh, Worldwide Box was 179 so I actually made money. But that being said, you'll never see anything else. And, you know, you said what, you know, what the results were of this. But in a way, in a way... Because this movie was made, you probably got to see things like Penny Dreadful later on. Probably true. Whether this movie, we know it wasn't successful. We know it partially, if not predominantly, led to Sean Connery's retirement from acting. We know it kind of led to that stuff. But it was also, you know, you wouldn't have had a Penny Dreadful. And Kim Newman's successful Anno Dracula series. I know I still buy those. you read those? No. I know it exists, but I have not seen it. Oh, I highly recommend those. You know, he's he's the guy who does. He's the British author who uh, film critic who. The British Gene Shalit, if you look at him. <laughs> the British Gene Shalit, but he's got this series. Uh, look on it on Amazon. Uh, if you don't want to go too further, I, you can also download them as Kindle versions. Anno Dracula. He does the same thing that Moore did with this with Dracula. And then he time skips every book. is like 20, 30 years later. And it's really interesting. So I highly recommend that. But I don't hate this as much as you, but I'm well aware of and will concede to the fact that it's a fucked up movie and it's not what we thought it would be. But that pretty much wraps up our Sean at 88 years old, I believe. Yeah, right? he was pretty old at this point. Everything Sean Connery is in is good. Well, tonight I think we just proved that simply isn't true. In fact, it's kind of hard to find anything Sean Connery is in outside of Bond that's any good. The Offense, Woman of Straw, Outland, but after that, you're kind of on your own. So I was actually shocked, thinking back into these films, just how bad most of them were and how few really even try to hold up after sitting through things like Marnie, League, and Orient Express alone. My my wife's daily mantra became no Sean Connery movies, so I was actually, let's say, impressed in the wrong way by going through this one. But you yeah, go ahead. What do you want to say? Oh, sure. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> no rebuttal. Join us next week for or next time. Thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Sean Connery. Next time, I believe we'll be talking Arnold Schwarzenegger. Correct? Yes. Yeah. So if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, or a musician, would like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. And of course, you are on Podbean now. Follow us over there as well. The third, I said podbean.com, and you can find them all there as well. Weird Scenes is at the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. And, of course, we're also on iTunes. Anything you want to close out on? Yeah, we hope you enjoy the show, as we hope you enjoy all the shows. And, actually, well, I know how people are sometimes, like, I don't know, I've seen too many things, I can't follow. Yeah, I mean, you can actually just go straight to WordPress, and it's always going to point you to those links. But there's a couple places to follow us. There's an iTunes RSS feed that you can subscribe to, so I'm no, just speaking to the feedback I get sometimes. Like, I don't know, it's complicated. It's kind of complicated. I don't like complicated. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, next time we meet, 
after this is aired, you will be listening to us talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger and his uh, quite impressive catalog of pictures, actually. When I'm going looking at the styles, like, hey, I like a lot of this. All right, so we will see you next time around. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio.
Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell of Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the Katie, the career, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seeds Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. So how about this cruise of death where you sort of like black metal prog bands? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm still working, me and my buddy too, we're still working on a list of who we saw mm-hmm. and who we missed because what happened was Okay, we were supposed to board on uh, Sunday morning around 11 a.m., and the Coast Guard prevented them from coming in due to heavy fog. So it turns out they were still by Cuba, like, coming in. Shit. And this is the incoming cruise. They have to get the people off, clean everything before we even get on. Think of all those poor souls who have missed flights, you know? They finally got in. And it was, I won't even go through the details. We didn't even board till 8.30 at night. So there was a schedule. There was a band at noon. Wow. Everything got fucked up day by day. So there were bands playing at 1.30 in the morning. Wow. There was a band at 2.30. I'm like, I really want to see them, but this is fucking nuts. I said, I can't even do the midnight band. You know, it's that reminds me of when we used to go around seeing bands in the bars, you know, back in my uh, younger days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these fuckers wouldn't come on until, like, 2 in the morning and stuff. I'm like, really? This place closes at, like, 3.30. What the hell are you going to do? <laughs> right. Well, that's bars. You have the yeah. option. You know, you're on the ship. And we had a schedule. You know, theoretically, we were like, okay, we'll see this guy at this time, that guy. Did. Everything went out the window. So every day, every morning, they gave you a schedule. Wow, this is even more fucked up than yesterday because, like, 
I want to see this guy, but this guy's playing at the same time. Right. There's only so many available venues on the ship. Yep. And so, you know, I, I would see, I made a lot of friends, you know, and I'm like, what do you recommend? I recommend these guys. I'm like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and everybody would say, go see this band. You know, we came all the way from fucking whatever country. And I'm like, all right. And, you know, the sound check, endless sound checks, too. And, and sound checks were like, hey, these guys ain't bad. And they would do the set. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I'm like, I'm, th I'm thinking now, how many people, you know, in Norway and Iceland, this is Prague, I guess, but this was like some bands were playing some dark shit and some bands were playing some metal shit. And I didn't mind the bands that you could hear in the overlap. Mm -hmm. They were definitely doing prog, and they had like a metal tinge, and the guys are really talented players, I and mean, you know, working 10, 15, 20 years as a group. It's just not really for me, but you know, I respect, hey, you're, you're good at this, you're good at that, it's just not my thing. There was, there was some stuff that was like, wow, this is dark, but I wonder how these other people are feeling about this, you know? <laughs> Uh, and, and it depends where you saw them. I saw that there was a band from Norway. Apparently, they've been around for like 200 years called Magic Pie. I'm like, what? <laughs> and they have a lot, of, you know, a lot of records out. And I saw them in a bar on the ship, and I was like, oh, jeez, I'm not digging this. Mm -hmm. And the next day, they were on the pool deck, you know, big outdoor space. And I said, hey, I really like these guys. I said, they, I don't know what happened last night. They sound really good today, and I, I don't mind the stuff. It's pretty good. So that kind of thing can happen. I missed a lot of people on purpose because I've seen Adrian Blue, and okay, I don't need to see him again. <laughs> and David Cross, who plays with King Crimson when they tour, and he had the singer who plays with King Crimson with him, and I just like I can miss that because it's not Crimson, you know. It's, yeah. You know, but I I I saw a lot. I saw a lot, and some things I would be like pass by. Said, "Let me take out twenty minutes of this and half an hour of that." And I saw a lot of full sets. BFM always fantastic. That Italian prog band that used to do soundtracks way back in the day. God knows how old those guys are. Mm -hmm. uh, it was it was it was a good time. Uh, I just couldn't see. We still my my the guy I was doing the room with. You know, he was like, "You gonna see this band?" I'm like, "What are you crazy, man?" It's like. What time are they playing? Well, they're in the big theater at 12.30. I'm like, oh, okay, come on. We've been seeing music since we got up at, like, 9. Yo, a.m. Yo, it's, it's it, yo, you got to cap it. All know? those pictures you were sending, I thought it was like a booze cruise because you were constantly in some hotel bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, how do you even, were you even sober enough to see a band? <laughs> Well, no, see, I explained it to somebody before I went, uh, somebody from, from my job, because, you know, a lot of people, a lot of older folks, you know, older than us, you know, they do cruises a lot, you know, some people yeah. in their retirement, it's what they do with their family and shit. Did you get the drink package? I'm like, no, it's insanely overpriced. And, you know, who could possibly drink that much? Mm -hmm. And I said, here's what you do. If you see one bandit... 11.45 for an hour, an hour and a half. You can have a beer. The sun is blessing. You might have two. You have a quick bite. And by 2 o'clock, you're seeing another band, but you got to leave them at 3. That's a beer. It's a cocktail. You know, you just space it out. It's a long, long day. 
So why, while it seems you may be drinking all day, actually not. And I keep my receipts, too, because I don't trust these bastards. <laughs> Good move. <laughs> no, it was a lot of fun, but it was... it was. Uh, we had a rocky day. I'd rather be on a boat than a fucking plane, man. Now it's, yeah. I hate flying. We, we were at Tampa, and the pilot said... Last Saturday, the pilot said, it's very windy in New York, New Jersey area. Just let you guys know before we take off. I'm like, okay, great. It was pretty smooth, and then we got close to Newark. I'm like, hey, this isn't one of those fucking paper airplanes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's... And we bounce, like, boom, boom, boom. I'm like, holy shit. I really don't like flying. <laughs> And then three days later, one of the bands on the cruise we saw in Jersey City. You know, it's I saw you watch some of that. Yeah. Yeah. He's really good. He's uh an acquired taste, but he's really good. And the the it's like the drama's from Dream Theater and uh stuff. So I'm yeah, back. I'm not really a big fan of the newer prog stuff. I do like you know, I sent you some recommendations. There's a couple of labels out of Greece that are releasing a lot of stuff that really? who the hell knew it even existed. That was back in the early to mid '90s, which was kind of when grunge took over and all this stuff. You know, you were lucky if they got out an EP or something like that before disappearing. Other bands didn't even get that far; just demos and things like that. And there's a lot of good bands out there that I didn't know about that are following the mostly Queensrÿche, but you know, Fate's Warning, Crimson Glory. That's mm-hmm. sort of a template. Good stuff. So I listen to a lot of that stuff. So I could say, oh yeah, I listen to a lot of prog metal, but the newer stuff is just like. I don't know, you either get the Dream Theater crowd, which is really kind of light to my ears. Mm. You get this one nowadays where they mix it with indie. So it sounds like, I don't know, Camper Van Beethoven or something, or Weezer is yeah. trying to do Dream Theater. It doesn't work at all for me. And then you've got, like you talk about the Black Prog stuff, which is just nasty because even if you like the music and the tone and the guitars and all that shit, just fucking singers, if you want to call them singers, screaming and screeching and growling and I'm like, all right, fine. If you're gonna do death metal, you can do black metal, but it doesn't work if you're trying to do anything else. If you're trying to make any more of a sound than sound just like fucking Dark Throne or something, you're screwed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that's why I was like, really, you know, is people going to see the guy from Genesis, Steve Hackett, who actually put on a good show of the three times the song was like one of the better ones. And yes, we're terrible on the cruise. I saw them a couple of months ago in Long Island. They were really good. They fucking suck. Did they saw um, Steve Howe? Yes. Yeah, I'll tell you something about that in a second. Uh, so anyway, yo, so, you know, the people seeing that kind of stuff is kind of mellowish. Mm-hmm. And then they go see this thing. But you know what? The people that came out of that harsh, metal, dark stuff yeah. were like, I think I'm going to buy your CD. Really? Okay, good. Good for you, man. <laughs> I'm like, it's tapped into your dark shit. Okay. <laughs> um, there was my my friend bought one. I forgot the band. I have to. I, I'm probably gonna see him next weekend. Yeah. Uh, he says I bought the CD. I don't know if I like it. It was one of those bands. I said, well, what's it called? Hell. <laughs> um. So would you not think that would key you in? <laughs> you bought a fucking CD. This is hell for world. <laughs> Fucking bands I walked out on. I said, see you later. Uh, yeah, I walked out a lot. So, oh, yes, let me tell you about this. So, they started out really low-key, and they were like, they could not find that space. Mm-hmm. And Steve Howe goes, you were about a quiet audience, and you heard... <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? And it didn't until they got to the encores, which were, even then, 
a little, shall we say, lackluster to be kind. And so the next morning, because I don't give a fuck, I saw the bass player, Billy Sherwood, on the poolside uh, having a cigarette and a coffee. I said, hey, how are you? Uh, what happened last night? He said, excuse me? I said, so it was a unusual show. Yeah. Yeah, well, we had, you know, the ship was rocking a little bit, and try stepping on those bass pedals, you know, when you're trying to play. <laughs> I felt like saying, you guys suck. What happened? <laughs> you know, you've been playing with them since Chris Squire died, uh -huh. you know, and so that's no excuse. And Steve Howe's been with them for 200 years, and that's no excuse. Oh, Alan White cannot play anymore. Really? Yeah, they didn't even bring him on for the big heavy hitters. They brought him on for one song, and it was embarrassing. Yeah, because I was going to tell you, I had a cover, a Yes album from a couple of years ago, even. It was a live concert. I think it was Chris Squire's last concert or something. They re-released it. And Steve Howe was fucking embarrassing on the thing. He was trying to do the old solos, but it sounded like... It actually sounded like a little old man, like, desperately trying to get his fingers to move to get the notes. But there was no mm. resonance. There was no tone. There was no vibrato. I'm like, this is awful. I mean, I know there's a level of nostalgia and, oh, yeah, I grew up with these guys. I love this. But, holy shit, there's a point where you got to say, back it in, man. Forget it. <laughs> well, you know, a big problem with these guys is that probably since Chris Squire died, they haven't written any new material. And before he passed away, they hadn't written any new material for like five years. So mm -hmm. it's like, what are we talking about? A number of years now, 10 years since they have any new material. They don't know how to find a guy who can record them properly. So... Even then, he could help in the studio. You know what I'm saying? As far as I know, they stopped putting out albums after Big Generator. When the hell was that? '85? <laughs> no, they, they they didn't do many after that. As far mm -hmm. as studio product, and it's yeah. like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. 